This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Good morning. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening to everyone. Uh, hello, all over the world. In class with Dr. Greg Carr. Hi. Mm-hmm. Professor Karen Hunter. Hello. Hey. Happy 50th. Good, good evening to everyone. Look good for 50. <laughs> hey, listen. Black don't crack. Never. I see what you said. I see what you did there. All right. I wanted to start off um, today framing the conversation around revolution versus reform. I started watching. Um, Judas and the Black Messiah. I don't want to get into the details of it, but it was fascinating as it started off. It's not my birthday. <laughs> my birthday's in April, two days. Oh, right. Yeah. Cars. <laughs> it's our 50th anniversary um, our episode here on In Class. But um, in the opening five minutes, you know, um, as you talk about, you know, the ways of learning, the ways of knowing, you know, what does it mean to, what do Black people mean to whatever the thing is and what do we mean to each other, every bit of uh, entertainment that we consume has to be looked at through the lens of history, right? It has to be looked at through the lens of actual history. And I remember last year on Netflix, they had that uh, docu-series on Madam C.J. Walker, yes. where, they, where they framed the Annie Malone character as a villain who was bent on colorism and it was absolutely inaccurate. And it's only because people don't know. You know, I'm sure they didn't set out to demonize the woman who actually gave the formula for Madam C.J. Walker to even have the empire that she built, which she did. But as black people, we have to challenge these things, whether it's the story of Nina Simone or anything. So I'm watching this, watching this piece and I'm like, what can we pull out of it for today? And in the opening scene, and I'm not going to give away too much, but the Lakeith Stansfield character is an actual person who infiltrated the Black Panther Party and set Fred Hampton up to be murdered, right? He's a real person. He's a real person. But he was able to be co-opted because he doesn't, doesn't know himself. And he's selfish. So when we talk about Judas, Judas is not actually an evil person. Judas is self-serving. Judas is a person that may want those 30 pieces of silver for himself, or in this case, wants to get out of going to jail or but doesn't understand his relationship to the people. And the Fred Hampton character talks about and moves forward. He says, revolution, he said, politics, he says, war is politics with bloodshed. (laughs) Politics is war without bloodshed, right? And, And as we start to look at what's happening in this country, you know, revolution versus reform, revolution being real change versus reform, which is making docile Negroes accept the name changes on buildings, the Martin Luther King Boulevards. He said, your dashiki is not going to save you. You could change your name. You could put on a dashiki, but is it revolution or is it reform? And reform is we're going to name a school after a black person. We're going to put Harriet Tubman on a $20 bill. Or That's make a movie called Judas and the Black Messiah. So I wanted to start there with you today, Dr. Carr, as we get into what's happening with this impeachment and we're going to have uh uh, some you know people ask questions, of course, and hello to everyone in the in the chat. Um, what are your thoughts on that, and where we are, and what that means for today? I think you, as you always do every week, you framed it in a way that I wouldn't have thought about until you framed it that way. And having framed it that way, you then give us the ground to think, and without thinking, without memory without doing that it's very difficult for us to imagine how to move forward 
realizing that this isn't about studying history or philosophy. This is about in, from in terms of Africana studies. A lot of people now saying that, you know, I'm in Africana studies. Not really. No. African studies is about how you approach a question. How do you ask different questions to yield different answers? Not digging up interesting black stuff. As uh, Daudi Azebo wrote 30, 40 years ago, it's the difference between black studies and the study of blacks. So those questions are really the, the point of departure. So when you ask that social structure question, who are these people to other people? It's very clear that not only is that driving um, the actions of the FBI, the Chicago police, the CIA, whoever you want to involve, the, the federal government, state and local government. But it's also driving that fifth category, which is movement and memory. And at least for the social structure. Now, the governance question that you asked, the second question, who are these black folks to each other? That becomes very interesting because it isn't an exclusively black conversation. Uh, you see young Fred Hampton, who uh, whose mother, Iberia, whose people are from Louisiana. In fact, they used to go down there. Fred Hampton's mom used to babysit Emmett Till. She talks about that. In fact, if there's one book you all want to read before you go watch any kind of movie, any kind of profit generating movie, I don't care who wrote it, Black, White, or Polka Dot, get this book by Jeffrey Haas, who's the lawyer for Sister Akua and Jerry, the wife of Fred Hampton, Deborah Johnson, when she was shot at, shot. How they settled this, the assassination of Fred Hampton, how the FBI and Chicago police murdered a Black Panther. And of course, we know it wasn't just Fred Hampton and Mark Clark who died first when they when he opened the door and they blasted him in his chest. Um, there were a number of other folk who were shot in that that day in uh, in, in December 1969. But we'll get to that. And, and thank you for that, you know, because it's, it's like we don't have the capacity to remember everybody, but we must remember everybody. Thank you, for and Mark Clark, and I, I, I want to sit and, and apologize for that. No, 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 yeah. But also, you know, I want to throw into this as we start to talk about later, you know, what has been happening in, in the Senate and the evocation of the the, um, the the word Julian Bond, you know, his name was brought up uh, this this week as well. There was an op the opening scene, um, the Lakeith Kent Stansbury character, he, he tries to steal a car using a fake FBI badge. And the FBI, in turning him and flipping him, they say, why did you use this badge? Why not a gun? Why not, why not use a gun the way everyone else uses a gun? And he said, the badge, that badge is more, more not more respected, it's more dangerous. It's more, black people fear that badge more than they fear a gun. Yeah. And, and when he said that, I was thinking, you know, the Black Panthers, first of all, shout out to last week, the 19-year-old Caleb who came in because Frank Hampton was 21 years old. How so, about that? I mean, out of I, Chicago, of all places, Karen. Out of Chicago, a 21-year-old who at 21. I mean, Mark, both of them. <laughs> Mark, Mark was 20, 22. Um, these are young people who had food programs, who had education programs, who were organizing. So when we talk about a Caleb who's 19 last week, again, he's operating in a tradition of young people yes. doing things, right? Yes. So. But I'm thinking they didn't factor in the infiltration of that badge. Had they, in addition to, and I'm just throwing it out there, in addition to the food programs and education programs and organizing and the, the self-defense, which was very important, why not do the reverse? Why not do what they're doing, which is infiltrating our community? Why not go in with the badge? I'm just, I'm just throwing it out there. Well, I think eventually, well, that that was something that they asked then. And at least in terms of uh, an overt 
fictional representation of what may or may not have been happening behind the scenes. They talked about that. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to tie Julian Bond in that conversation that 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 one little mention uh, that that fool Michael Vanderveer made of uh, case uh, Julian Bond versus James Sloppy Floyd. Um, that was his nickname, Sloppy, by the way, white boy from Ch Ch Chattanooga County in Georgia. Um, those of you from Atlanta, y'all know those, those buildings downtown, y'all call the Twin Towers. That's the James Sloppy Floyd building. Those are the two towers named for this guy who was over the Appropriations Committee, a Democrat in the state legislature who led the charge to deny Julian Bond his seat, which is why the case is named the 1966 case at the Supreme Court. The majority opinion written by Earl Warren, uh, Floyd, I'm sorry, Bond versus Floyd. Uh, that's the Floyd. But at any rate, when James uh, Vander, whatever his name is, uh, uh, um, um, evoked uh, Floyd, Bond versus Floyd. And then Jamie Raskin came up right after him and said, yeah, I knew Julian Bond. Um, I knew Julian Bond. He was a colleague of mine at American University. We know Julian Bond went on to become an academic uh, who did a lot of work. In fact, there's a recent book that just came out. In fact, this is a curriculum as a, as a professor. This is called A Time to Teach. Julian Bond's a time to teach a history of the Southern civil rights movement. Um, these are the editors, including Jeannie, Jean Theo Harris, who did the book on uh, most recent book on Rosa Parks, not written by Miss Parks. She wrote a number of books about her own life, but um, the rebellious life of Rosa Parks. Uh, but this a time to teach consists of uh, a great deal of Julian Bond's lecture notes and outlines reformatted uh, on his history. He was a professor uh, uh, when he made transition. Uh, he had been a professor for a long time at the University of Virginia. Um, my uh, dear friend and colleague, Claudrina Harold, who's chair of the history department down there now, one of the best young scholars, best scholars period we had working today, was friends with Julian Bond. And uh, I didn't know Julian Bond. I mean, I had several conversations with him over the years, as you can imagine, being in spaces he was in, 50th anniversary of SNCC, some other things. And every time someone from SNCC makes transition, whether it be John Lewis, even during the pandemic or before that, Marion Barry, the rest would gather. So I remember, you know, encountering Julian Bond in those spaces and having two brief conversations with him. I mean, two T.O.O. The, the conversations were too brief. But Claudine knew him well. And he was a professor at American, which is where Jamie Raskin knew him from. And Raskin is like, you know, American University in D.C. And he said, you know, he's a civil rights hero. And he said, do not desecrate the memory of Julian Bond. And then he distinguished between Bond versus uh, Floyd. Uh, and we'll talk about that in a minute and tied, believe it or not, to Fred Hampton and all this other stuff going on. But I don't want to stray too far from the from the uh, the observation you make. Why don't we reverse it? Why don't we infiltrate? Well. When these young people are doing what they're doing, and we're really going to talk about today, probably the period between like 1964 and 1970, 1964 Freedom Summer, 69, December 69, the murder of Fred Hampton. And then Haas takes it all the way through. By the way, the Keith Stanfield character, William O'Neill, he only gave one in-person interview where he basically confessed. And Haas writes at the end of that Fred Hampton book that we were sitting there with our mouths open because it took him. Uh, years to get a settlement. They they ended up settling for about uh, two million dollars. The Chicago police got their fees. In fact, the settlement was finalized, and they were told they could pick up the check on December. I'm sorry, on February 28th. In fact, House and then put a statement out saying it's appropriate that y'all settled on Black History Month. Not that we can bring any of the people back, but. Haas and them were like, "Damn, this fool finally confessed." It actually was in Eyes on the Prize series two. Uh, 
produced, created out of the mind of a huge collective of incredible workers, including a number of very important SNCC members, including the great Judy Richardson, my friend Judy Richardson, very important, uh, led by a brother out of New England called named Henry Hampton, one of the great filmmakers, along with St. Clair Bourne and some of the other, uh, in fact, the brother who did the uh, FBI Martin Luther King documentary recently is you know, a part of kind of a, a next generation overlapping really with that Henry Hampton generation. Henry Hampton was the man. If Henry Hampton had lived, um, you know, no disrespect to Ken Burns. I don't believe in beating up on people. People tell their story the way they need to tell it. Everybody has, in other words, everybody has their culture meaning making. Everybody has their movement and memory. For people of African descent in 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 documentary filmmaking that's kind of commercially released or commercially adjacent like PBS, Henry Hampton in many ways set a standard, uh, a gold standard so to speak. But Eyes on the Prize was work of collective. And there's actually a book that's been written by John Else entitled True South. Henry Hampton and Eyes on the Prize, the landmark television series that reframed the civil rights movement, True South. And he tells the story of how William O'Neill, that Lakeith Stanfield character, um, interviewed with Hampton and several other part of people in the uh, Eyes on the Prize team in the segment that if you all have ever seen Eyes on the Prize series two, they do a whole hour on the Panthers and the murder of Hampton and Clark and that whole context. And the O'Neill interview edited is in that hour. Uh, the unedited version, of course, is in the archives. But the brothers who uh, produced that segment, that episode of Eyes on the Prize, include my friend Louis Masai, the great filmmaker out of Philly, Louis Masai, uh, who won the uh, one of the MacArthur grants many, many years ago. Uh, Louis Masai was in the room. And William O'Neill, of course, as we know, very nervous, they say, as, as the account in here and the testament goes, uh, finally, you know, gives it. And they say, well, why did you agree to talk to us? You've never talked to anyone else. He said, well, my, I want my daughter to know the truth. And then just as the series was debuting on um, on PBS, it was about to drop. I mean, like literally like that day or the day before, William O'Neill runs out into traffic in Chicago and they say it's a suicide. And then Louis Messiah in here says, was it suicide? Was he murdered? We'll never know. But you know, I don't know. They're cleaning up loose ends. They'd be saying black people are paranoid. You damn right. We're having this conversation in English in the United States of America. How the hell we can't be paranoid? Y'all brought us into a field of violence that has been unrelenting since day one. But at any rate, the question of infiltration is very important because one of the things that happens between 1964, Freedom Summer, which we'll come back to in a minute, and 6970 is black folks start imagining different kind of world, even in their creative work. So return for a second, for 15 seconds to those six conceptual questions we ask in Africana studies. This, what is the social structure? Who are Africans to other people? The counterintelligence program is in full flight. We know that in this moment. They're attacking anybody who looks like they're trying to transform the society. I don't care, violent, non-violent, communist, non -communist, that's all excuses. Governance structure, who are these Africans to each other? Well, they are determined to change their material conditions. And, well, you know, in, in the case of Fred Hampton, in the case of Black Panther Party, the uh, Illinois chapter, statewide chapter with Peoria and Chicago being the kind of big piece in it. You know, you read Jacoby uh, Williams's book from uh, Bullet to Bullets to Ballots. It kind of traces this. And also a reminder, because we talked about all, some of this stuff overlaps with what we talked about many episodes ago, many segments ago, when we talked about the uh, transitions of John Lewis and C.T. Vivian. We did, a, we did a lot about that through the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which is how I want to tie these two things together. Get this book if you want to read about the Panthers. We mentioned it then. We'll mention it again now. Black Against Empire, the history and politics of the Black Panther Party, Joshua Bloom and Waldo Martin. Chapter 10 
is on Hampton and Clark. If you don't read nothing but them 20 pages, you look at that film like, what the hell are y'all doing? But at any rate, what you see is that by the time Hampton and we asked that governance structure question, who are these Africans to each other? What are they doing in Chicago? Well, in Chicago, they are trying to pull together people. They're trying to pull together people who are poor, people who are oppressed. They're trying to pull together labor. And what do you see? You see Fred Hampton reach out. Fred Hampton, who was raised um, in Maywood, a suburb of Chicago. This young man. Go ahead, Karen. What, what came to mind? Can't hear you. Still. Oh, uh, yes. yes. Uh, in the movie, Fred Hampton, when he talks about war is politics with bloodshed, yes. politics is war without bloodshed. How do we win this war? People. And every week I come into this space, I'm reminded that there are people of like minds. There are people who uh, care deeply about their community, people who care deeply about one another. That the myth of us being crabs in a barrel is a myth. Oh, it's a myth. It's perpetuated by the narrative. And we have to change the narrative by the actions that we, the people are the only thing that will fight and win this war. And we have people, and they, and that's why the Black Messiah was the most dangerous. That's why the the FBI targeted Hampton and and Martin and Medgar and everybody that was, but in I mean Billy Holiday, you know Nina Simone. You think about like people who are just using their art to sing about strange fruit. They're targeted by the FBI. That's right. They're inspiring people to rise up, and the only way they can get to that William O'Neill character is because he didn't he didn't know he didn't care about Malcolm or Martin. He didn't know himself. He didn't right. care about his people. That's right. And, and we have to double down. You know, the Hippocratic oath says do no harm. Mm. But if you're a majority, you have to every day ask yourself, am I, am I doing something to further to free people, to free myself? That's right. That's have right. A, a addendum to the Hippocratic oath when it's when it comes to us. I that's just exactly right. No, no, no. That's very important because. The people can do it. There was a book Jonathan Shell wrote a number of years ago called S-C-H-E-L-L -L is his last name, Jonathan Shell. It's called The Unconquerable World. He said there are two major powers in the world today. One is nuclear weapons. The other is the people. I mean, what about the governments? I mean, well, governments, you know, consent to govern, wanting or not wanting. It's the people. But when you start organizing the people, that part of this structure that does not like that because it will lose power will move against you. And they are organized. That's that social structure. So, I mean, I want to um, just and I'll come back to this, but I want to introduce it because you raised it. You know, why don't we infiltrate? Well, who's to say we weren't? This book came out nine months before Fred Hampton and Mark Clark were assassinated. Sam Greenlee's book, The Spook Who Sat By The Door, the first black nationalist novel. Now, that's kind of not true, really. I mean, you go back to the 19th century. That's right. I would consider Blake perhaps the first black nationalist. But um, A Chiller in the Tradition of 1984 by Sam Greenlee. Now, this, of course, is... Um, Bantam Books, right? This ain't no black press. This is not a black press. They had black presses at that time, Dudley Randall and them. But my point is that this book scared the hell out of people. Now, I'm going to show you another book because we're going to come back to that in a second. That was 1969. Fred Hampton was alive. In fact, much of what happens in that chapter really is a 1969 story. Two years before that, this book had come out. That's John Williams's book. The most powerful book about blacks in America since Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. Now, nah, Ellison's Invisible Man, not as powerful as this book. This is John A. Williams, The Man Who Cried I Am. This is the book that has a fictional representation of 
something called, and I know you heard it, Karen. So many people are watching. Y'all heard the King Alfred plan that they go round up all the black people and put them all in the concentration camps. It was fictional. It's near the end. See King Alfred, but it's based on this idea of the counterintelligence program. He even got a, a map where they're going to divide the black people, participating local agencies, state agencies. Out of the mind of John A. Williams came a fictional representation of what they imagined was going to happen to black people if the organizing of people got a, too far out of hand. Now, I'm sure that the King Alfred plan, I'm sure the counterintelligence program, I'm sure that the spook who sat by the door, I'm sure that all of that is represented in the movie Judas and the Black Messiah in equal weight with, you know, who was an informant. I mean, no, wait. Yeah, nah. You know why? Let's go back to the conceptual categories. Every group of human beings has the same conceptual questions. The reason we, we call these Africana studies uh, questions is because black people do too. See, that's why you got to have your own discipline because you have to ask different kind of questions. You can't just siphon your energy off into these other disciplines because every other discipline is white studies. I don't care how black or brown or non-white it gets or the, 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 uh, the phrase people use instead of non-white people of color. You know, because again, once you are in somebody's social structure where they have a different use for you, and by they, I don't mean everybody and they agrees. I mean that there's a there's a consensus, however, that you are not them to evoke James Baldwin. Then however you find yourself coming into history or philosophy or literature or whatever, you're going to be fighting your way in. Why not start with your own foundation, your own questions, and then you can have conversations with other people. So uh, the governance question who are Africans to each other is fed by how do they use science and technology? How are their ways of knowing? How do they view the world? Uh, what kind of movement and memory as they go through time and space? Do they pass on to their children to the next generations? Do they tie back to previous generations? And finally, in any moment, what culture do they create? Now, why is that important in this context about revolution and reform? If you don't remember what you did before, how are you going to plan more effectively for what you're going to do today and what you want in the future? Memory precedes action. You've got to think about it. And if your memories are constantly being fed by somebody else's movement and memory, hell, you might not even remember. This is a good book for young people in particular. It's got a lot of pictures and stuff in it. This is called, listen, Whitey, The Sights and Sounds of Black Power, 1965 to 1975, Pat Thomas. Nothing but pictures in here. Do you remember the music of that 10-year period? You mentioned Nina Simone. You mentioned Elaine. Elaine Brown was a singer who ended up running the Black Panther Party out of the West Coast. The Last Poets. Do you remember uh, all this stuff? Dick Gregory's many albums. I mean, my friend and elder Dick Gregory, I wrote the uh, introduction to his last book before he made transition. Seize the time. I, I resisted the urge to go and get all these little paperbacks because they were publishing them all the time. Here is a record Elaine Brown did, Seize the Time. This is all cultural meaning making. All the Malcolm recordings they were listening to. All this is cultural meaning making. Uh, Carl Stokes did a piece here where he said, you know, they killed Fred Hampton. They killed Mark Clark. It's a tragedy. But a, a greater tragedy would have been if all those Panthers had gone to jail. So let's look at at least that as a victory. And they're looking at him like, what? Are you crazy? Because that first black, uh, first critical mass of elected black officials coming out of this Voting Rights Act is beginning to take office and there are demands black people are making of them. Oh, of course, I'll stop with this. The great Nikki Giovanni, her, 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 her albums, you know, one of these got James Cleveland on it when they do that one as well. But at any rate, the question we ask ourselves in terms of revolution and even Harold Cruz actually wrote a book, collection of essays called Rebellion and Revolution around the same time, a little bit later. But that period from 64 to 69, 70 is important because these are the questions that are being asked and you see the convergence. You see the convergence. So Julian Bond is denied his seat 
in the Georgia legislature from the election he won in 1965, when James Sloppy Floyd, he was called Sloppy because as a kid, he was too little to fit his football uniforms. And, you know, in the South, they give you nicknames. And if they like it, it sticks. So it stuck all the way. But at any rate, this white dude served 22 years in the legislature and then he died, you know. So this is about halfway through his tw his two plus decades in the in the uh, legislature in Georgia. He leads the charge. They're Democrats. Now, y'all think DR, you can kind of no, think white nationalist party because Democrats ran Georgia at the time, but they were white nationalist Democrats. So Floyd leads the charge to deny Julian Bond. Why do they deny Julian Bond who won his election? He's there to be sworn in. They convene a meeting and they vote 184 to 12 to deny him his seat. Why did they do that in 1965, late 1965? Because in 1964, this like this is watch this one. This is called like the butterfly effect. You want to go online and look up the student voice. That was the newspaper of SNCC. Remember, they had Freedom Summer in Mississippi in 1964. And Bond, of course, uh, as part of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, we think, of course, of the great heroes, Fannie Lou Hamer. Uh, we think of Yanita Blackwell. We think of the uh, great Annie Hyman. We think of the great Vernon Dahmer. We think I'm naming Mississippians first. You understand? These are what John Dittmer and them call local people. And, and we're going to see local people crop up again with Julian Bond. We're going to tie this together in a minute. And then we think of the the, 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 the group collectively that David Halberstam wrote and called the children. But of course, those who are still on this side of the earth now are revered elders, and many of them continue to become ancestors. John Lewis being one, one of the most recent who became an ancestor. And we're talking about the, the members of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, many of them Southerners, many of them not Southerners, who came into Mississippi that summer. I'm thinking now, oh, I'm sorry, let me name a couple of other Mississippians, the great Dory Ladner, my friend. Dory Ladner, of course, out of Hattiesburg, Mississippi, and talked about her before, and her sister Joyce. Uh, are in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. They are joined by Bob Moses. They are joined by Charlie Cobb. They are joined by all of those great Africans who came into the space. Uh, Donna Moses, uh, now Marimba Ani, for those of you who know the book Yurugu, he was on my dissertation committee actually. Brilliant, all these young brilliant, and they are joined by at least a quarter of the SNCC staff that summer, a little shy uh, under 200, are uh oh man i'm just thinking about all these cats i knew man and uh, the, the ancestor lawrence Gio Gio was from this you know this but um um they were joined by at least a quarter of that staff was white so i don't even know if i have his stuff around here oh man i would have to go find it but oh man that's too bad that's too bad because i'm thinking about some of these cats bob zellner here he at back i know i got bob zellner's book oh yeah yeah look at that 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 here it is Here's Bob Zellner's memoir, The Wrong Side of Murder Creek, a white Southern in the freedom movement. Bob Zellner with Connie Curry, very important. Now, Ancestor Forward by Julian Bond. Now, if you look at this book just came out a couple of years ago. In fact, I picked this up when I was in Chicago last year, uh, when we were there for about a year ago now. Race Man, Julian Bond. This is a collection of Julian Bond's work. Here's Julian Bond. The young prince, so to speak, what I say that his daddy was Horace Manbaum, one of the great educators of the 20th century, president of Fort Valley State College, president of Lincoln University. Very important. Wrote about blacks in the cotton south and blacks in education. Brilliant brother. Also a Republican who lended Julian Bond a little bit of money to run for that office when in the wake of uh, some reform in terms of redistricting, they figured, hey, we can win this seat. So who comes and asks uh, Julian Bond to run for that seat? John Lewis. Who else? 
hmm, I'm hold down some of them cats. You know what? You know, because they really snickers me and run out of Atlanta by that time, which is going we'll to come back to in a minute. But here's Julian Bond. Who's next to him? That's Bob Zellner right there. That's when they're younger, right? So you see black and white folk in this picture. But um, so they're in Mississippi in 1964. And their strategy is to come in there. We're talking about voting rights, talking about organizing. You know, you read Bob, uh, Bob Moses' any of his work. Because he's in like, like like the rest of them, he's never stopped working. We had our freedom school students read the year it came out, something called Radical Equations. Bob Moses is talking about the algebra project, which he started. Very important. But he based it in the work that they had learned organizing while in SNCC. So, so, the, so the story is really a lot about what happens in Mississippi. And uh, in fact, the year it came out, we had our freedom school students reading in Philly. And every year, somebody we were reading somebody who was alive, who wrote the book, we would invite them. And Bob Moses wouldn't leave his classrooms. He said, I'm working on this thing, but I'll send my man. And we got a chance to sit with Dave Dennis, which was beautiful. A couple of years later, uh, Bob Moses came with his wife and he actually did come to freedom school and talk to the young people. And it was, you know, I, that's, a, that's, a, that's a beautiful brother. Well, they're all beautiful people, you know, uh, the people that um, Marion Barry, all of them, who was the first chair of SNCC, by the way, who called uh, David Halberstam called the children. But how's this tied to bond? How are we going to tie this to the Panthers? How are we moving forward on this question of revolution or reform? What happens in 64 is the emphasis is on finding local leadership. Part of the emphasis. And out of that leadership emerges these young people in Mississippi who are uh, attending what they call freedom schools. This is the origin of freedom schools in the modern movement. This idea of having these places where you sit people and you think through, they're being fed not only intellectually in terms of literacy programs, they're also talking about job skills. They're asking people, what kind of job can you get in Mississippi if you had the skills? Well, I could be a typist if I could get, okay, well, we're going to do typing. And they, they start a newsletter. Uh, we talked many uh, sessions ago about Septima Clark out of South Carolina. You know, the, the question of citizenship education project, all this stuff is going to converge in one way and another in places like freedom schools. So in Mississippi, those freedom schools began to engage not only in this kind of building of literacy, building of political literacy, building of, building of uh, the capacity in terms of skill development. But in terms of that cat, that third category, ways of knowing how do African people make sense of the world, they're tapping into things these people know. As, 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 our, as our sister and ancestor, the great Nzinga Radabisha Heru used to say, just because I don't know what you know, doesn't mean that what I know doesn't count. So they always respected the things people knew. I mean, this is how you get a titan like Fatty Lou Hamer. Oh, by the way, parenthetically, let me just footnote this right quick, Karen. Uh, your friend Nina Turner told me to tell you hello. I was talking to her yesterday. She's She's got a podcast, Hello Somebody. And she asked me to have some conversation around COVID and race and suspicion in black communities. And I was telling her, oh, yo, I'll see Karen tomorrow. You tell my friend, tell her I love her. I will see her soon. And she just told me to tell you hello. But she's in that tradition of Fannie Lou Hamer. You got people, I'm from the neighborhood, I'm from the community, and I'm going to assume leadership, you see. So part of that becomes the critique of America's foreign adventures. And you know who begins to formulate that first position on the Vietnam War? It's not Martin Luther King in the Civil Rights Movement. It's the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And it begins in 1964, Freedom Summer, when young people, particularly young people in Mississippi, began thinking through this idea of why we're against the Vietnam War. And they develop a, 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 position, a position statement out of the Freedom Schools. It ain't even SNCC yet. It's the, it's the people and their ways of knowing this is wrong. As a man would sing, not even quite 10 years later, nine years later. No, wait, actually, what? What was the What's Going On album? I want to say that maybe that was 1974. 
War is not the answer, for only love can conquer hate. Remember? Because that's when Marvin Gaye, along with Stevie Wonder, are taking Motown out that other. they going straight to the issue in terms of cultural meaning making. And how do we know it was important? How do we know it was still important? We know it's important because here we are in 2020, movement and memory. We still remember Marvin Gaye. We still remember what's going on, right? Oh, I should add one other thing. Fred Hampton at his funeral, the honor guard. Let me read you the honor guard because we're going to tie this together in terms of um, in terms of um, governance structure. Who are Africans to each other? Because it ain't just black people, but it's coming out of a black foundation, just like the critique of Vietnam came out of the black foundation. What you see is that the honor guard. Let me read them. The honor guard at Fred Hampton's funeral. Oh, by the way, at the end of the funeral, shout out to the new ancestor, Mary Wilson of the Supremes. The funeral they played. Someday we'll be together. Oh, yeah. Diana Ross and the Supreme ain't when it started. It started as the Supremes flow ballad. Diana Ross and Mary Wilson. I thought I had. Oh, yeah. This ain't the history. Get Mary Wilson's book, Dream Girls. If you want to know the history, but get Supreme Glamour if you want to see the style of the Supremes, right? But they played that Supreme song at the end of the funeral. But who is the honor guard? The honor guard was composed of Hanrahan's most wanted list. And y'all see the movie Judas and the Black Messiah. Ed Hanrahan is the state's attorney in uh, in uh, Chicago, who is the one trying to kill these people. Right. Along with his friend, J. Edgar Hoover. So, you know, let me make sure my my uh, computer is plugged in. There we go. Yeah. Yeah, you go. That's what I'm looking for. Here's the honor guard. It said this is the hit list for the police. It included David Barksdale, the chief of the Black Disciples. Now, some of y'all Chicago old school, y'all know the difference between the GDs and the Blackstone Rangers, but nah. He's a pallbearer. He's an honorary honor guard. Jeff Fort, the leader of the Black Peacestone Nation, was the uh, Blackstone Rangers, but then the Peacestone Nation. Why? Because they uniting the gangs. And it was Hampton, who was raised in Chicago suburb, Maywell suburb, Maywood, not downtown Chicago, right? Who first made the overtures to Jeff Fort say, man, we need the, the, the we need Peace Stone, which was absorbing some of the other gangs. We need Peace Stone and the Panthers to merge. Ford is like, yeah, I'm cool. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, but you know, we think y'all should become members of us, not we should become members of you. And at that first meeting, Fort Fort does a show of force and brings all the guns in, all these cats in, and he gives Fred a, a 45 and says, Yeah, take that with you, try it out, see how it is. He basically showing him, hey man, we run the streets. Now we ain't against each other. Meanwhile, Hoover and them writing fake ass letters back and forth, trying to get them to fight each other. And they say in the coin tell, in fact, if you can just get one book, get this one on whatever movie they make or don't make. Don't believe in no movies. Movies are not real. Agents of Repression, the FBI's secret wars against the Black Panther Party and the American Indian Movement. That's uh, Ward Churchill and Jim Vanderval. They have another book called the COINTELPRO Papers that reproduces some of those documents. But Agents of Repression walks you through footnote by footnote from the FBI files and documents that eventually they got a hold of. Haas is suing them. You got some white kids that break into an FBI office in Media, Pennsylvania. Those of you from Philly know where that is. Media, Pennsylvania, just outside Philly. They find the files. They start, they, they, they let the files loose. And that's where you see how O'Neill is recruited. What happens there? Who else is an informant? Some of the other informants inside the chapter. All this kind of stuff going on. And so 
the 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 uh they find out that they, wait a minute the panthers trying to get with the gangs yeah nah they gonna fight we're gonna make them fight and you couldn't make them fight you couldn't make them fight i don't care how many informants you got why because they know each other so let's keep going cha-cha Jimenez. Who is Cha-Cha Jimenez? Some of y'all read Joanna Fernandez's new book, The Young Lords, and I recommend it very highly or talk to any of the Young Lords. The Young Lords are probably best known and known at all out of the East Coast, New York specifically, but it started in Chicago, Cha-Cha Jimenez. Cha-Cha Jimenez, chairman of the Young Lords organization. Oped Lopez of the Latin American Defense Organization. They going international on this. That's why you read Black Against Empire. We, the American media and American popular culture tries to frame this whole thing According to the social structure's needs, you know, the the need, you know, the desire of the American social structure fed in its media, fed in its government, fed in its politics is the USA, USA, USA. You know, the desire of African people in the governance structure, freedom, liberation for all humanity begin with us. And we don't give a damn about state borders. This is what terrifies the hell out of them. They're not only uniting domestically, they're uniting internationally. Uh, go on. And I'll stop with this one. And a representative from the Latin Kings, Father Clemens, the popular black priest from a Southside Catholic church, read the obituary prepared by Fred's family. Go on. Now, there was a person that wasn't in the honor guard or there was a group that was not recognized in the honor guard in part because they were scared. At least as described by one of their co-founders, they were afraid that with Hampton's assassination, they wouldn't be able to continue to build what they had established when these two organizations, the Black Panthers reaching out, came to the north side of Chicago. Those of you in Chicago know the north side, about Wrigley Field and Pass, going on into where uh, the suburbs where um, Northwestern University is. The only time I go in that neighborhood, usually is to go to the bookstores up there, the used bookstores. I pull some good treasures over there out of the year. That's the north side of Chicago, right? White. In fact, at this point, these cats that Fred Hampton reaches out to, they call that part of Chicago in terms of poor people and working class people, they call that hillbilly Harlem. Now, I'm talking about an organization called the Young Patriots. The Young Patriots, who are they? The Young Patriots organization are the poor whites. Now I'm sure they're gonna show that in the movie because they gotta act like that's the reason that the FBI worked against them. Now, y'all always tell this story as a domestic, but it was an important piece. This is just published last year by High Thurman, who's co-founded a Young Patriots organization. It's called Revolutionary Hillbilly, Notes from the Struggle on the Edge of the Rainbow. That was the original Rainbow Coalition. It was the Black Panthers, it was Black, it was the Young Lords, Brown, and it was the Young Patriots, White. Black, Brown, White, that's the original coalition. Jesse Jackson's political iteration of the rainbow came from that. Now, the guy who is usually quoted in terms of being with the uh, Young Patriots is the other co-founder, but, and he was known for coming in and organizing white people. He had a beret like the Panthers and like the Young Lords, but his beret had a Confederate flag on it. <laughs> yeah, because these my people, you understand? What the hell? So how y'all getting on with the Panthers? Eventually, the, they they agree we should stop wearing that uh we should stop wearing that um that conf that confederate flag <laughs> we should start wearing that confederate flag and so but then when they decide to do that in fact here's the point here's what i'll make the, the other co-founders a guy named w william fesperman they called him preacher man he was the minister of information for the young patriots one of the co-founders oh by the way the illinois chapter of the uh black panther party was founded by three people. In fact, let me go back to 
uh, to book, show your picture of two of the three. Because one of them is in the United States Congress right now. You know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about Bobby Rush. So goes Bobby Rush and Fred Hampton. There's Fred Hampton. But here go Bobby. I'm sure Bobby Rush is depicted in the uh, in the movie because he has to be. He's part of that. Uh, thank you, Kareem. 1971, what's going on? Um, but I mentioned him because the third person isn't don't have a picture of him in here. Still walks to earth. Good brother. I seen that cat roll up on people, man, and intimidate the hell out of him. I, I, I ain't never had no beef with him. That's my man, Bob Brown. Bob Brown, very close to Kwame Ture, Stokely Carmichael. Why? Because Bob Brown was one of the leaders. In fact, the leader, if not, well, major leader of the small chapter of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee that was in Chicago. But this is important because Fred Hampton, who had grown up kind of working class, middle class, who uh, had organized a walkout of his high school when there was this race thing that went down because white folks attacked these black girls and then they retaliated and then they want to ban all the black kids. So as the as the leader of the NAACP students there, he reaches out to the national NAACP because Fred Hampton is solidly kind of middle strata, working class, black middle class. So he's NAACP leader. He's a leader in his school, all this kind of thing. When he, now imagine, as you say, this guy, when he is murdered, he's 21 years old. So all this happened in the late teens, well, mid-teens to late teens. You're thinking, my God, what the hell? This boy has got this talent. He's got this gift. So SNCC, yeah. By, oh, so who takes them out to the West Coast to meet with the leadership of the Panthers? Stokely Carmichael is very interested in this. Why? Stokely Carmichael came out of SNCC. Stokely Carmichael was the third chairman of SNCC. Chuck McDoo. I'm sorry. No, no, no. No, 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 no. Let me stop. Because we talk, y'all can go back and look at this. Marion Barry, Chuck McDoo. Marion Barry, Chuck McDoo, who just made transition not too long ago. John Lewis made transition. And then Stokely Carmichael. Carmichael is going to call himself forging an alliance. He becomes like the minister of defense for the, uh, not the minister of defense, prime minister for the Black Panther Party. It's more symbolic than not, but the idea is they're building coalition politics. So Carmichael is interested in getting Hampton and them in there. They want a branch in, uh, in Illinois. That's how it happens. Now, you don't have to go through me. You don't have to go through uh, you, Professor Hunter, Karen. You don't have to go through anybody else with second or third hand knowledge. As the Yoruba would say, Omo, you know, it's true. But then you got secondhand knowledge. They say, if you weren't there, it's secondhand knowledge. There are a lot of people who were still there. Bobby Rush is still around. Uh, Bob Brown is still around. Kathleen Cleaver is still around. I mean, in other words, the people you can think through this. And it tends to be, in fact, I want to show you all this book just because it's kind of ancillary to this, but I want to mention it because it speaks to this notion of how we tell our own stories. This is a book that uh, Janet Dewart Bell, the, the uh, partner of the great Derek Bell, wrote a couple of years ago. Well, she interviews. It's called Fighting, Lighting the Fires of Freedom, African-American Women in the Civil Rights Movement. And she's interviewing a lot of these sisters. Um, Diane Nash, of course, who's still around. Judy Richardson, who I'm going to talk about in a second, who's still around. Kathleen Kiever, Gay McDougal, Gloria Richardson, of course, who is still around. In fact, Gloria Richardson is where I want to mention. Gloria Richardson is the sister who uh, was in Cambridge, Maryland. This is how Story Carmichael and them get involved. This is the famous picture of her in Cambridge, Maryland, out there basically giving the hand to the damn police. And then maybe Gloria Richardson is is like, um, oh wow. Next year, Gloria Richardson will be 100 years old. She's born in 1922. But she says at the end of her little interview, she says, uh, very few people have interviewed me. 
I think about my man, Joe Fitzgerald, who uh, went to grad school at the Temple, came was a little bit after me. He's done a book on Gloria Richardson, but she says, very few people just came out, University of Kentucky Press, last year, year before, says, very few people have interviewed me. They're saying what they thought. In other words, secondhand knowledge. I find, I guess, because I'm still here, that there's some changes, stuff that even maybe years ago was published in books or in narratives, and now it looks like they're set. I think they deliberately sanitize stuff. She says, I have no idea how I would want my obituary to read, except that if they write an article, I want them to get it straight. To say that I was able to become part of the people and carry their hopes and desires and internalize it and carry it out into the public spaces and win some things. Here she is in 2017. That's Gloria Richardson. But I'm raising it in the context of what we're talking about today, because when you think about how this stuff is narrated, there are silences, there are omissions, and then there's a generation or two that isn't fed it in the schools, it isn't taught it in communities at home, then they make a movie. And people use the movie like they looking at what happened and get it all erased. So let me continue very quickly. The governance structure question, who are Africans to each other? In Chicago, the Panthers, with this young brother at the center, Fred Hampton, are building coalition largely around his individual capacity to build coalition. So much so that these white boys <laughs> are saying, we'll come with y'all in this rainbow coalition. Now there are other major figures or will become major figures who are also in Chicago like young Jesse Jackson. Because remember this, by 1969, Dr. King has been killed the year before. Jackson is, is heading up what this, um, the, um, oh Lord, um, Southern Christian Leadership Conference's branch in Chicago, Operation Breadbasket, and he's in conversation with these cats. In fact, let me just show you. Here's another picture. Judas and the Black Messiah, right? Because the COINTELPRO papers, the counterintelligence program papers had a memo that said we must prevent the rise of a black messiah. King could have been the one to rise up and electrify these people. Stokely Carmichael could be the one. Carmichael got the hell out of the country for a while. You know, read his uh, Ready for Revolution, right? You go read Ready for Revolution. When, in fact, Ready for Revolution, talking about falsifying documents. Um, Kwame Ture says that when they would tell, mistell stories, like they'd say, well, how did you organize in Alabama? They dropped off Stokely Carmichael in the middle of Alabama with a Bible or he started organizing. He said, that's foolish. He said, I don't even respond to myths. My daddy told me, don't even get involved with it. But if it's a misrepresentation like that, sometimes you have to respond. And he said, you know what uh, Fred used to call it? He says, Fred in here. And then Michael Thelwell, who actually was able to finish the book after Carmichael made transition. Michael Thelwell puts in, he's talking about Fred Hampton. Fred Hampton called it custerism. In other words, you know, like Little Bighorn. This was a this was a massacre. No, y'all went out there effing with them Lakota and they gave you your scalp. But at any rate, but who tells the story based on what they're interested in? The social structure's interest has never been in telling the story. He said, well, black people made it. Yeah, black people made it in the social structure. Don't be stupid. So at any rate, continuing, what you see is Operation Breadbasket is, uh, is in Chicago, which is Southern Christian Leadership Conference. That's how Jesse ends up in Chicago doing that work. And I'm only mentioning the COINTELPRO papers here because we talked about them before because there's a picture of the document, the first page, because they got to prevent the rise of a black, quote unquote, messiah. They don't want no one individual that could unify people, this kind of thing. And we, people say, well, we shouldn't be focusing on individuals and leadership. We should be focusing on the people organizing. OK, yeah, that's right. You're absolutely right. But people can play outside roles, outsized roles in organizing people. Here's a picture of Fred Hampton with who? Ralph Abernathy, Martin Luther King's man, and Jesse in a dashiki in Chicago. This is going to be important. Why? Fred Hampton and Mark Clark assassinated December 1969. Bobby Rush immediately goes into hiding. 
because they he said oh, they're gonna they're gonna kill me. Bobby Rush reaches out to Jesse Jackson, who by then is having his meetings, right? The country preacher. In fact, this picture appears in the, and I, I, I don't even know if I have that here. It's probably in storage. Those of you who have the album, The Country Preacher, Jesse Jackson uh, releases an album. He's got several albums. It may even be a picture in that Listen Whitey book. But inside, he's got a foldout that has pictures of Jesse with some people. And this picture is actually one of the pictures that's in that album. I Am Somebody, I think is the name of by Jesse Jackson, The Country Preacher. Uh, I'm trying to think of that's the one where Adderley, uh, Cannonball Adderley is on there playing. But Jesse would meet on Saturdays on the South Side Operation Push. Bobby Rush works it out with Jesse. Bobby tells Jesse, brother, see, this is the thing that they really scared of. These cats is getting together. You got Kings people, you got the Panthers, you got the gangs, the, the disciples of the young Lord, you the young lords, the Latinos, the Puerto Ricans, you got the white boys, <laughs> the young, what the hell? So Rush tells Jesse, brother, they gonna kill me, man, but if I turn myself in with you there, they can't kill me. So what does Jesse do? Jesse calls a thing and Bobby Rush surrenders to the police into the hands of the highest ranking black police officer in the Chicago police and Jesse Jackson at the at the meeting. In other words, I mean, this is how they're thinking. But I'm just saying that is that's kind of, you know. That's just a way of evoking the fact that that real rainbow, I want to say real because they're different. They have different functions. That rainbow coalition with Fred Hampton, the black, brown and white coalition. Jesse takes that concept and moves it into electoral politics. And what High Thurman writes about in this book, in his book on the young patriots, is that once Hampton is assassinated, they're terrified. That whoever takes over leadership now of the Panther Illinois chapter isn't going to have the same energy to keep them united. And at the same time, he says, preacher man comes to him and says, we need to go and move the young patriot or uh, young patriots into uh, um, from move it from uptown Chicago and, and hillbilly Harlem. We need to we need to now join a, a national. We need to have a national profile because he got this ambition to be national. And he says that's what eventually stalls. The young patriots. We were local. We were building local power to the thing that you framed us with at the beginning, Karen. You know, you're building local power. You're building people power. But then, you know, Fesperin's like, in fact, he says, Fesperin was forced to leave uptown by members of the Young Patriot Organization because of his blusterous ego and refusal to conform to the needs of his uptown people. He was more interested in gaining a national reputation and an identity with other radical and revolutionary groups than serving the needs uptown. This is what the young chairman, uh, chairman uh, young patriots chairman at the time, Bobby McGinnis, says. I'm saying all that to say that all of this energy is going on. We're talking about basically the Fred Hampton stories that says basically 1969. And if y'all want to read about Fred Hampton, I mean, the so-called ice cream case where he basically liberates all this ice cream from this truck and they charge him and convict him of stealing this kind of thing. Uh, if you want to read the, the, the breakfast programs, which launched in 69, all that stuff coming out of the 68, traveling to the West Coast, then coming back. All that stuff is very compact period of time. Now, pause there. Julian Bond is runs for office in 65. He had one foot out the door of SNCC. And as he tells it in both these books, but in particular, in particular in Race Man, where he writes about this, he says SNCC had really made a turn that I couldn't really deal with. 
the Atlanta chapter was doing well. They had turned to kind of like a Pan-African thing. If you go on Duke University's SNCC Legacy Project piece uh, website, you can see the documents. They, they're looking internationally. In fact, they go to Africa. Fannie Lou Hamer, John Lewis, uh, Bob and Donna Moses, Charlie Cobb and them. And so they're thinking internationally. And they their statement on the Vietnam War was international. So we'll come to that in a second. I'm going to kind of wind this to a close. And we have a little bit of conversation before we get everybody else in the conversation. Julian Bond. Okay. 65, they have the Julian Bond runs for office. That's after Stuart Carmichael has become the chairman of SNCC in a highly debated election that went damn near all night in Tennessee. And John Lewis is displaced as the chair. Shortly after that, John Lewis, who was considered a radical when he was out there, you know, on Selma Bridge and all this kind of thing. John Lewis now, you know, you look too close to Martin Luther King and them guys, man. John Lewis is put out as chair of SNCC shortly thereafter he leaves. After John Lewis leaves, Julian Bond leaves. The pop, the anti-Vietnam war position that emerges, bubbles out of that, 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 that those people in Mississippi eventually hardens into a SNCC position statement against the Vietnam War. We're coming to Jamie Rankin. And Julian Bond resigned from SNCC, by the way, formally in September 1966. He's elected in uh, late 1965 to the Georgia legislature. But they come out against the Vietnam War and they tie it to international affairs. SNCC does. The Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee argues that the uh, the Vietnam War is, in fact, let me just let me just do it right here. Um, at a January 6th, 1966 news conference, I'm sorry, I was off by a year. John Lewis is still chaired by January. Shortly thereafter is when he gets proposed. At a January 6th, 1966 news conference, SNCC chair John Lewis read and distributed a SNCC statement detailing the organization's opposition to U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War. And they talk about, he asks, where is the draft for the freedom fight in the United States? They say, you asking Negroes to stifle the liberation of Vietnam to preserve a democracy this, which does not exist for them at home. And then he says, he says, you know, it's the SNCC that he's reading it, but it's a SNCC statement. They were big on that. Ain't no individuals. In fact, that's part of the tension when Carmichael comes in. He said, we drafted this. You read it as chair, but we drafted this. We wrote this. The thing is, y'all want us involved in international imperialism, but in the same violence you want to move against these people. You're doing it against us. Remember that it's around the same time Muhammad Ali is like, ain't, ain't no Viet Cong ever, you know, jumped on me. You my oppressor. You my opposer. If y'all remember, y'all go on YouTube and see him doing that. And so now what happens? The money dries up. Oh, yes, all rah, rah, and good when, you know, oh, it's one thing we did right when the day we started to fight. Yeah. Keep your eyes on the prize. Your prize ain't global solidarity movements. Your prize is the right to vote. Your prize is to integrate these schools. Your prize ain't licking with the poor everywhere, beginning with the black and brown people. What the hell's wrong with you, Negroes? The money dries up. Here is from Race Man. This is, these are some of the editor's notes. Bond resigned from SNCC in September 1966. Oh, by the way, they asked Julian Bond, Mr. Bond, yes. You come into the legislature, you won your election. Yes, 82% of the vote. Very proud. Yeah, your people came out against the war. Mm -hmm. You agree with that? Yeah, I do. So you agree that uh, 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 people should burn their draft cards? Hold on. 
Julian Bond says, I got my draft card in my pocket. I ain't say burn your draft card, but I agree with that statement. So sloppy Floyd is like, shit, you can't sit in this legislature and 184 to 12. You can't be seated. He sues. Lower court agrees. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's within the power of the legislature to determine rules over and above the oath, because what they do is, of course, they make you swear oath to the Constitution, Georgia State Constitution, federal Constitution. And so they say you can't take that oath in good faith because you lying, because you against the, the government, because you against the war. Bond is like, no, nah, it's a First Amendment issue. It's freedom of speech. And no, no, I didn't say overthrow the U.S. government. My organization said they're against the war. I agree. I got my draft card in my pocket, you know, but uh, he said, and I have respect for the courage of people who do not go, but that don't mean I'm not going. And so Bond is trying to, you know, balance it. Right. But here's the interesting thing. Yesterday, when Jamie Rankin evokes Julian Bond, his friends, civil rights hero, all that, that's all social structure, which is great. I'm not complaining. I'm just saying, who is Julian Bond to America? And by America, I mean the white social structure. Julian Bond is an American hero. He's a civil rights hero. He was my colleague at American University. He's the, he did this race man. He did a whole civil rights curriculum. He's doing all that. Yeah. But the reason there was a Bond versus Floyd, because Bond appealed to the Supreme Court and they overturned the lower courts and told the Georgia legislature, you cannot deny him a seat based on the idea he can't take his oath because he has freedom of speech. And that's protected by the federal constitution, which is why we have the jurisdiction to be able to intervene in this in the first place. You're quoting it to tell this fool who was responding to Chris Van Hollen, who was following up from Senator Blumenthal, who had asked Trump's attorney to clarify why there is a constitutional right for Trump to do what he did. Raskin comes back and says, you know, keep Julian Bond name out your mouth because Bond versus Floyd does not stand for the principle you're trying to evoke it for. It stands for the principle that he had already been elected. First of all, he said Julian Bond had already been elected. They were denying him his seat based on denying his First Amendment rights. That is very different than your man who was sworn in, who served for almost four years and who incited an insurrection. This is a very different. Don't use Bond. And he said, and don't besmirch the uh, reputation and the memory of Julian Bond, who's a civil rights hero. Footnote, I should add, because I just loved it. I didn't you love it, Karen, when um Stacy Plastic came up after that and was like, you know, she she was making the the allegory, the uh, the uh, she was reinforcing, she was using the allegory of male-female relationships, particularly these white men in the Senate, which is why I loved it. The smoke. Oh my God. She was talk, she was making an allegation, uh, she was making an allegory between um courting your wife and how many times you'd have to court your wife and how many you wouldn't just do it one time and how Trump had been stoking this fire for years. And then he stoked it at the end and it jumped off. So it's a momentum. But what she said, though, I was like, oh, my God. See, you got to be an Africana ways of knowing. In other words, how are we interpreting this? She said, well, I can't quote it verbatim. Somebody had to look it up. But she said, um, you know, it's like you. It's like you. You men could not. uh could not court your wives with one try. Then she said, you had to build it up. Oh my God, did we just murder? Murder was the case that they gave me. Did you just snatch all of the manhood of all these white men in the United States Senate? And she just went on. Now, 
going on. But anyway, that's a footnote. Back to the point. Rankin is evoking Bond versus Floyd for the principle that you must distinguish between a First Amendment right and what your man did, which was inside an insurrection. So don't use Bond versus Floyd. But he's using it in the very narrow sense of the social structure. Now, in the governance question, who are we to each other? The reason there was a Bond versus Floyd is because Julian Bond stood with SNCC which came out against the war and made domestic policy in the U.S. part of an imperial policy critique, which was very much in the spirit of where SNCC was headed, where the Panthers already were. And so fast forward to 2021, you make a movie and make it about an informant and whether he was human or not and the love story and all this kind of thing. If you don't address the fact that all of this is happening with these young people who are aware of organizing, not just as a local thing, but connecting it nationally and internationally to oppressed peoples, then you've put out a piece of propaganda that is cultural meaning making for somebody's social structure, but not our governance structure. I don't care what color you are, how great the acting is or the music or all that. That's probably one of the reasons No Name decided she wasn't going to be on the soundtrack. But now, let me drop this other piece in and we continue because the overall theme of today is revolution or reform. Which way? You raised that, Karen, and it's brilliant. Julian Bond. Julian Bond, man. Fascinating figure. Son of an HBCU president, one of the most accomplished intellectuals of his time. Himself a brilliant young brother, Morehouse, you know, was at Morehouse College when he joined the movement, a writer, a thinker, you know, the critiques of him, right or wrong. Did he know exactly what he wanted to do with his life? Could would he have gone into politics? Could he have been Jesse? Jesse goes into politics. It's that Rainbow Coalition piece, right? It takes some of the energy of the, the organizing Rainbow Coalition and puts it in electoral politics, right or wrong debate. Should you have somebody at the table? Should you infiltrate, whether it be the fictional FBI with the spook who sat by the door or whether it is the uh, uh, the very real structure of electoral politics? Debate we're still having today. We don't have it from scratch if we have our memory and see what last time it happened, because once Clark and Hampton are assassinated, it scares the hell out of those young revolutionaries who are thinking, are we next on the list? Why do they even think that there's a list? They ain't broke the Pro papers yet. They don't know what we know. But you know what they've been reading? They came out in 1967. They see the King Alfred plan. And by the way, John A. Williams, in order to promote his book, had the King Alfred plan pages reproduced and littered around on the subways of New York and different places. It was an advertising thing. Man, to this day, there are people who think that King Alfred plan is real. King Alfred plan is probably more powerful in our immediate minds in some ways than another fictional piece, the Willie Lynch letter that goes up. So it isn't in terms of cultural meaning making the fact of whether or not something is true or not. Hell, W.B. Du Bois wrote a three volume uh, kind of semi autobiographical history of a century called the Black Flame Trilogy. It's fiction, but he uses it to speak to these archetypes, these things. And he drops a lot of history in. Williams is doing that in The Man Who Cried I Am. The Willie Lynch letter, there was no Willie Lynch. He didn't stand by the banks of the James River and say all that stuff. However, many of the tactics that are talked about in the Willie Lynch letter were used in terms of enslavement. But these young people now, who are now not so young, mid-20s, late-20s, James Foreman, actually older than that, they're saying, shit, who's on the hit list? 
Kwame Ture's story. Carmichael, I say, ends up Kwame Ture. He ends up in West Africa. Shit, you ain't gonna kill me. I'm just gonna say and wait for it. You got people, I mean, you know, Algeria, J uh, Kathleen Cleaver and uh, Elders Cleaver, they end up in, in Algeria. Read the uh, book Algeria, Capital of the Third World. Or better yet, read their own writing about that. People are going out. I mean, already uh, Robert and Mabel Williams are in Cuba. I mean, <laughs> they got them on the most wanted list. You know, so I'm saying that kind of shockwave, you got Julian Bond with a foot now, he's in electoral politics. He's coming out of the movement, but even in the movement, Bond was like second, third generation, black intellectual, bourgeois kind of thing. And that's not a critique of that class position. It's just saying it's a very different life experience than a Fannie Hamer or even an immigrant to the United States like Stoney Carmichael. But they're all part of this band of brothers and sisters, this circle of trust, as Snick would call it. But that thing has begun to dissolve now because the money from outside of black communities has dried up once they come out against Vietnam. Because you don't found out white people are with you until they not. They ain't with you around this international oppression shit. No, right to vote, I can get that. A dog biting a man or biting a woman in her privacy. Yeah, hell yeah, I don't like that shit. Wait a minute, hold on. My army is the same as, no, I can't go with you. In fact, I'm not sending no more money. So Bond is contacted by Kenneth Clark. We talked about Kenneth Clark this summer. We talked about Jaho Franklin. Kenneth Clark is one of the uh, black intellectuals who's trying to straddle the fence too. They give Kenneth Clark money. Remember, Kenneth Clark is the one that did the test. He and his wife, Mamie, that said, see these black kids picking this white doll over this black doll? That means we need to have our children sit next to your children in the school. Wait. So the solution to stopping black low self-esteem and, 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 and the damage is to have the children sit next to the human being the doll looks like. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Anyway, Clark is now getting big money out of New York running this organization, running this, uh, this, uh, this group called MARC, the Metropolitan Applied Research Center. He asks Julian Bond, Kenneth Clark, this is uh, 1967. He asked Julian Bond, could you write a memo on what happened to SNCC? Julian Bond says, yeah, I'll write it, but don't put my name on it. Please don't, you know, share it with the people you needed to share it with, but don't put my name on it because I'm going to be very candid and very frank. And Julian Bond starts talking about what happens when you take these positions, which should be considered revolutionary. And he says, that's when the money dried up. That's when we couldn't stay after organization. He said, present financial difficulties. Remember I said, Karen, we're going to talk about roughly speaking 1964 to 1969, 70. Julian Bond tells, uh, John, uh, tells uh, uh, Kenneth Clark, present financial difficulties began after the summer of 1964, intensified in 1965 with the organization's anti-Vietnam war stand, and it become nearly insurmountable with the election of two new chairmen in 1966 and 67 and the adoption of an anti-white policy in staffing the organization. Because when they go to Stokely Carmichael and after Stokely Carmichael out of Louisiana, Hubert Rapp Brown, Burn, baby, burn. Die, nigga, die. Oh, they they pro-black and they telling white people, Bob Zellner and them, we love y'all. We love y'all, but we need black people to be the face of this organization. And I tell you, as somebody who is deeply grateful, Karen, I cannot express my gratitude deeply enough to be able to know some of these elders, to have sat with them, to have laughed with them, to break bread with them, to watch them debate, cry, argue. When you see a bunch of 70 and near 80 year olds arguing like they 20 years old, you see what that must think. Them, them damn marathon meetings, they would go for days at a time, you know. But to see Bob Zellner, I mean, see some of the white members of SNCC who have never lost their commitment in those spaces today. And to realize that, you know, it's deep pain still. 
in terms of what happened in that turn. But they all were there when Stokely got sick, when Kwame Ture said got cancer. He said CIA today he died. He said CIA gave him cancer. They were there when Hubert Rat Brown got sick. They were there, John Lewis. They were there. They come together. That circle of trust isn't unbroken in that sense. But at the 50th anniversary of SNCC, I'll never forget being there. If I was with panelists, one of the one of the one of the conversations, I was very deep again, deeply grateful to even be in that conversation, you know. But I watched as they had a tribute to Kwame Ture after the main program in the hotel. We were in a little room. I sat next to uh Stokely's sister. She said, Come sit next to me. You remind me of my brother. I'll never forget that. My God. I said, wow, really? So I'm sitting here in the back. We're in the back watching. She's very quiet watching. Jesse comes in. I'm looking at the amber, I'm sorry, the embers of a youth coalition that a Fred Hampton was trying to build. But it wasn't part of the daytime stuff. I'm saying Because even there, Black nationalism, Pan-Africanism, which is still, yeah, we are still, there are still, there are still probably hurt feelings. James Horn was alive still at the time. There's still, you know, a sense, oh man, you know, the brace thing. And Julian Bond is telling Kenneth Clark, who ain't never had a dog in the in the in the black nationalist fight, Kenneth Clark, them damn dolls, is telling him the money dried up after that, and the leadership went, and then they started telling white people they couldn't be in the leadership. And then he said, We knew that was gonna happen. Some of us had predicted that. And so what ends up happening is we don't have the infrastructure, and this is what he said. He says suspicions and theories of conspiracy plagued the lives of SNCC black leaders. He says during the week of July 30th, members were convinced President Johnson, he's writing 67, the man who cried I am came out in the spring of 1967. Julian Bond writes in the summer of 19, in the fall of 1967, that in the summer of 1967, members were convinced President Johnson had given the FBI, state and local police forces, a list of the names of 15,000 Negro militants, all of whom were to be arrested that week and held in concentration camps. King Alfred Plain. Needless to say, all organization staff members believed their names were on the list. This is a rebellion, revolution, reform. It ain't just a debate we're having on YouTube or in social media. It's real world consequences. When I see these young people, I was watching uh, our friend Jared Ball. He got something called Black Power Media, right? He interviewed Fred Hampton Jr., uh, our sister Rosa Clemente. He and he he and he and Rosa talked to uh, to her to him to Chairman Fred Hampton Jr. And they're talking about this issue, you know, of how this film may represent things and not leave things out. And Fred Hampton Jr. is being Chairman Fred Hampton Jr. is being very very transparent. He said, "Yeah, they had me and my mama involved in this as consultants. We had debates. I was on the set. You could see the transformation." Rosa said, "Yeah, I was there too. I could see the spirit of Shasha Jimenez. I could see all that in there." At the same time, it's Hollywood, man. It's Netflix, man. So you're not gonna, you know, you you can't use that as a proxy for organizing. And then Jared did another uh, session with some of these young people who were in Black Lives Matter, who were in local chapters in Philly and D.C., um, in Jersey. And they're saying, we don't like how the national BLM leadership is using it. They're getting money from these grants and foundations. We ain't saying get the money. We uh, not get the money. We saying, how does that get to us? Because we out here, the ones confronting the police. And they said, we don't deal with no police and we don't deal with no politicians. So you see the tension there. And you're saying, OK, we got to work through this. We got to help y'all work through this. And it's not that y'all not studying. I mean, y'all out there, but it's not a rigid line between doing something and studying something. They loop each other. You got to go back and look to see this is what's going to happen next. 
some of your if you take this stance, your friends not gonna so at least some of these people say we need the money. Okay, if, you, if we don't have the money, we need the support. Yeah, because you know what the last time you took a stance and the money dried up from these other people because it wasn't their agenda. The thing came apart. They started attacking these other people. They dropped out. Julian Bond is like, mm, what does Bond say? Bond then says, here are some potential alternatives. He says, because I'm going to tell you what happened in 64. Bond is telling Kenneth Clark this to tell the rest of these uh, black people who want to debate whether to do integrate or not. This book right here, get this book, The Habit for Discussions of Black Integrationist Manifesto. This is the meetings they would have. By the meetings, I mean, Kenneth Clark headed this organization up. And some of those people included uh, Ralph Ellison, John Hope Franklin, St. Clair Drake, the beast, St. Clair Drake. Oh, my God. To look at all that. You're seeing them have these discussions because as the Black Power Movement unfolds, 1964, 65, then you get to 1969. Fred Hampton, Mark Clark are killed. It's clear the police and the damn federal government are going to kill these young people. They don't want them involved. Now these Negroes, some of whom become elected officials, some of whom are like, you know, respectable grant getting Negroes. It's like, eh, OK, we don't we want liberation, too. But I think we got to go about it another way. Fast forward to 2020. All this mass marketed black history, black, 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 black stuff coming out of social structure institutions. I understand the motivation from a lot of those people, some of whom are my friends. They're like, yeah, we got to get in there because this is where we can make our hit. Okay, I get it. But understand, this ain't the first time we've tried this. What happened the last time we tried this? Look at this debate from May 1969, May 30th, which means basically June 1969. In a few months, Fred Hampton and Mark Clark going to be assassinated. And they would have killed Sister Nkua too, Mama Nkua, if they had, you know. Well, Mama Nkua actually is the one who says, you know, she heard it. And it's probably in the movie, too, where Hampton survived the initial barrage. Then the two cops go in the back. He's still breathing. Boom, boom. Oh, he's good and dead now. Yeah. I would say spoiler alert. But how the hell are you going to watch a movie to find out history that you should have known all along? I don't give a damn about no spoiler alert. Anyway, St. Clair Drake, who with Horace Caton wrote a very important book on Chicago called Black Metropolis. Really kind of uh, another link in the long chain of black folk doing urban sociology. The first major book probably was W.E.B. Du Bois, Black, White, Polka Dot, Urban Sociology, The Philadelphia Negro. Black Metropolis, the massive telephone book that St. Clair Drake, the brilliant St. Clair Drake um, writes with, with him. He's now going to say, this is what um, St. Clair Drake says. Because now they're talking about these young black people and organizing and whether they're going to be revolutionaries or not. Kenneth Clark says this. They're in, they're in a conversation. They're having this conversation, these integrationists. He says, uh, uh, he says, may I point out here something? Because I think that Ralph has just put his finger on something. Ralph Ellison. Because, you know, Ralph wasn't no nationalist. You know, Ralph's Invisible Man is great. I prefer, perhaps, in many ways. Although, I think, no, nah, let me not say that, because you ain't got to pick. But, uh, like Ishmael Reed's Mumbo Jumbo, who has a critique, too. But anyway, he says, Ken Clark says, after we get through the whole moral, ideological thing, at the base, I suppose, certainly at the base of my thinking, is a very practical problem of what does an oppressed minority do in a situation where certain kinds of techniques and methods that appear to have worked for oppressed majorities throughout the world are now being offered as if they can work equally for an oppressed minority. Now, see, I don't question anybody struggle, black struggle for freedom. We can debate. That's what ways of knowing category is. What, what concepts, what ideologies, what, what ways of thinking have black people created and debated? Ways of knowing isn't we all think the same. Ken Clark wants the liberation of black people, but he's looking at the odds and he's saying we can't win no nine to one fight with guns, bro. 
So he's now with people who think a little bit more like him. Although St. Clair Drake don't think like uh, uh, Kenneth Clark. I'm going to read the whole transcript from this one meeting. You have to get it for yourselves. But when he raises that, he says, and one of the things that fascinated me, this is what Clark is saying. Whenever these kids mention Fanon's The Wretched of the Earth, is that they never ask themselves the basic question of how relevant is Fanon to American Negroes when Fanon was talking about oppressed people who were in the majority. Sir Arthur Lewis, interestingly enough, jumps in. They haven't read Fanon. Kenneth Clark's reply, clearly. He says, this is a practical problem that if it isn't addressed can only lead to a sort of romantic, uh, romantic sort of suicidal rhetoric. And the danger, of course, is the possibility that it could actually be suicidal. This is before Hampton and Clark are killed. Now, mind you, black people ain't the minority everywhere. And the demographics are shifting now. So the white people are going to be a minority if these all these other non-whites start getting together. Right. But this is 1969. He says, but if you say this, the stock response up to the point when I was being responded to is that this is another manifestation of being white brainwashed. You see that you're really giving a sophisticated form of Uncle Tomism if you ask to just look at arithmetic. What are tactics and strategies given the fact that you are outnumbered 10, 9 or 10 to 1? We don't like to talk about this. Ralph Bellison then says, well, I asked the kids, do you know how to shoot a gun? And most of them don't. Watch what Ellison says next. I was brought up shooting guns. In the winter of 1937, I supported myself by killing game. I mean, it's fascinating once we get beyond the, the quotes and the T-shirt brand to start listening and thinking the debates that are going on. I won't go on any further except to say then St. Clair Drake jumps in. Drake, the great thinker, the great sociologist, the great anthropologist who near the end of his life published a two volume work that I think, as John Henry Clark used to say, is still worth reading. Hell yeah. 1987 is called Black Folk Here and There. I'm looking at it over there on my shelf. Volume one, volume, volume two. He starts with the origin of humanity and takes it all the way through to today. But he frames it as a discussion of sociology. When we developed those conceptual categories, it wasn't just us some up spitballing. This is based on years of thinking about how other people thought about Africana and coming up with a framework to have us ask better questions. And Drake is one of those people. Drake then says, you know, the best critiques and analysis of our position in this society, minority position that I've read have been written by black folk who ain't from here. He mentions Arthur Lewis from Princeton, who is from the Caribbean, and he mentions uh, a brother named Isin Udon. If you ever get uh, Isin Udon's book, Nigerian, called Black Nationalism, he's writing about the nation of Islam. And what Drake says is, Usain Udon does a better job writing about the black Muslims than C. Eric Lincoln did in the black Muslims of America. He can see it different. And what they both are saying is, you black elites, Y'all basically talking about what you're talking about, can reform maybe, or, or, or at least that's what they think. We reform, we can change the structure within. But what Drake notes is these other black scholars from other places are looking at the black American and they saying, yeah, y'all might believe that and that might be true in part or tactically, yeah. But the masses of your people, they don't believe that. And so really the reason they're having these Haverford meetings in Haverford, Pennsylvania, the Haverford discussions, the reason they're having them it's because black people ain't listening to no Negro intellectuals then or now. What we doing on Saturdays, we got, you know what I'm saying? We got friends who writing books. They've gone book tours. They're, white people buying them books in the social structure. They ain't listening. Ain't nobody listening to Kenneth Clark and Ralph Ellison and John O. Franklin and them. So and let, let me end with this, Ken. I know it's about time. So I, okay. He asked Bond for this memo. This is what Julian Bond says. I'll end with this and then we'll keep going. Julian Bond says, 
Dr. Clark, you wanted me to pose some alternatives. Maybe have we get SNCC started again. He said, maybe you can rally them. Maybe you can get some more funds. You can get them engaged in specific things. I love this paragraph, though. He says, or the organization might be encouraged to choose one particular section of the South for experimentation with a new reconstruction, attempting to use movement techniques of direct action, political and economic organization attempts, youth organizing, and a multitude of community-wide attempts at mobilizing the total Negro community for the political, educational, and economic advancement. The memo doesn't impact anything, but Julian Bond, who many people thought during this period, Julian Bond will be the first black president, who was, as far as I'm concerned, again, you don't have to pick because I'm obviously it didn't happen. But if I could if, if, if I could switch out Julian Bond for Barack Obama, one million times out of one million times. But the choice of reform, John Lewis comes out of SNCC. Eventually, John Lewis and Julian Bond lock horns. Y'all go back and look at the conversation we had about C.T. Vivian and John Lewis when you see that congressional race because people wanted Julian Bond. The majority of black people in that district voted for Julian Bond, but the blacks who voted for Lewis combined with the non-blacks who voted for Lewis put John Lewis in. Julian Bond ended up a distinguished career as a professor, a lecturer. He is the voice on the eyes of the prize documentaries, but Julian Bond never became the political figure that many people thought he could be. John Lewis, along with uh, Congressman Clyburn and them, who was also in SNCC, I mean, the people, you know, South Carolina, they took the direction of reform which is why at John Lewis's funeral, Bill Clinton could stand up and take a dig at Stokely Carmichael because he said these Negroes who took reform, you know, they want liberation too, but they with me and Stokely, he went a different way. But you know, John, John kept the course. Yeah, that's the social structure hillbilly from Arkansas. You understand? If Fred Hampton had had his way, you'd have been in the revolutionary vanguard, but you too made a choice because you white in America and you could do that. Whether your name is Bill Clinton or Josh Hawley, young Josh Hawley, because y'all trying to prepare America's preserving, preserving America is your objective. Meanwhile, our objective is liberation. We want everybody to be free. We damn sure going to make you stop beating on our heads. And for every practical advance toward reform, there is the other tendency. The one that St. Clair Drake's trying to tell them boys, man, these cats out here in the street, they don't give a damn about you or anybody else that's going to get between them and some form of freedom is going to get this boot off their neck. And as long as that energy exists, there will always be a rebirth of the Panthers. Black Lives Matter, the Panther Cubs, Chairman Fred Hampton Jr. talking about, you know, organizing the Panther Cubs. So these tensions are with us. And if we don't study, we won't have the ability to answer them better in this generation. So how should we be viewing what's happening right now in America? You know, a lot of people, you know, want you to talk about the impeachment trial. Uh, I know we were committed to talking about the 1776 project. But we, could, we could, it's all right. We'll get that next week. No, but I keep asking the question, you know, even going down that, that rabbit hole, you know, yes. how does it free us? You know, oh, are, yes. I think, are we ingesting things that uh, are not, you know, I feel like a lot of times we, we end up in these circular conversations. We end up, you know, watching, you know, and having commentary about what's happening in in the world right now but not how it actually gets us to freedom. And so I, I tuned out of the impeachment, you know, the uh, Trump's um, defense, because I knew it was BS. And, you know, to, to have an emotional reaction to it, I got, you know, a limited amount of energy. I can't expend my energy, <laughs> you know. Um, no question. Masturbatory process. You know? Come on now. Come so, on now. And shout out to Stacey Plaskett from the U.S. Virgin Island by way of Brooklyn. What, what was the quote? What was the quote, uh, Karen? Oh, oh let me let me uh, get it, because uh, Karina <laughs> popped it in here. She said, this this attack is not about one speech, 
most of you men would would not have your wives with one attempt at talking to her. Right. And then the next sentence was, you had to build it up. And yes. I was like, oh, yeah. oh. So that was New York. That was y'all. <laughs> you know what's, cra- you know what's uh, amazing about this woman? First of all, um, law school, of course, like you went to law school yeah. and has five children. So when I look oh. at, you know, when she looked at Jim, Jeff, whatever the brother, and, and Jordan, Jim Jordan, Jim Jordan, gave him that look and told him to shut the hell up and turn back around. And he shut up because Stacey Plaskett is not to be played with. And you, that energy is for real. And, you know, I just. Stacey Plaskett is like you, Professor Hunter. Oh, I see myself. She's about, she about, she about six feet tall. I mean, you know what I'm saying? You ain't going to just roll on Stacey Plaskett. That's right. That's right. And she showed you that she could walk and chew gum. And no, raise five children, and be in Congress, and fight for y'all's rights, and and not have uh you know all, it has all the time. Yes. Uh, but so how should we be looking at this? What when you when you watch? I know you watch. You comment. You know you came in. You know had some some commentary on Twitter, and y'all can follow him at Africana Car. Oh, yeah. Just Twitter. a little bit, not much. I didn't watch much either. Okay. So so how what does it mean to us? What's happening right now with this impeachment, and what what should we be concerned with moving forward? Okay, well, very quickly, and I know we'll get to conversation we'll have with folks. I think one of the reasons why, I mean, the the only reason why, really, we study and not just study books and articles written by people about the periods, but look, try to look as much as possible to what the people who were living through those periods said and did. And if they're alive, sit and listen to them. Oh, by the way, they're trying to say to Fred Hampton House, Mama and Jerry, and Jerry um, Chairman Fred Jr. They're trying to get that work done. But one of the reasons, in fact, the central reason we do it is to see in the moment that we're living in, our moment, in this moment, to see what we can learn from those experiences to apply to the, uh, as John Henry Clark used to say, the resolute question, how do my people stay on this earth? And now with environmentalism, how does the species stay on the earth? And so when Sonia Sanchez, Mama Sonia asked, you know, yeah, but how do it free us? The question has shifted over the last 50 years to how do we survive even as a species in part by stopping the work. I think about uh, Lennox Yearwood and some of the black folk who were involved in the uh, Destiny Hodges and them, one of my former students at Howard, involved in this in black environmentalism movement, which is very real and very important. He said, what's that got to do with black people? Listen, if there ain't no air, we all going to die. As Curtis Mayfield said during the same period, if there's hell below, we all going to go. I don't know if y'all know that, that, that song when he opens up with the lady saying, last night I was reading my Bible and I was reading the book of Revelations. And then he was like, niggas, whites, Jews, if it's hell below, we all going to go. <laughs> he said, all this stuff is going on, polluted park with water in the pool. And then he says, and Nixon talking about, don't worry. He said, don't worry. How does this relate to us, this impeachment? In many ways, the federal government is saying to us, and Biden talking about, don't worry. He said, don't worry. In other words, the illusion is that the government, federal, state, local, can solve our human problems. And that if we can just continue to focus on leadership, elected leadership, that is the central focus. That should be the central focus of our struggle to remain on this earth, to solve the problems of our people, black and brown folk, the poor. But here's the problem. 
when that social structure has a never been structurally, it was never designed to benefit all humanity or to preserve the earth. I'm talking about the last 500 years, the modern world system, racial capitalism, however you want to frame it. Then the cultural meaning making, the movement and memory that come to support that social structure will continue to reinforce the message to not take your eyes away from the drama of an impeachment trial. And if you're going to watch it to reinforce in your mind that if all if we can just get rid of this racist and lock up the people who came under the Capitol, we can then begin to get it right. No, 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 no. The challenge we have out of the governance side, who are we to each other? And then connecting to other people out of that foundational question. The challenge we have is to imagine a world that's different and then work to achieve that world across the spectrum so that a Stacey Plaskett is much better to have in the Congress than if she was not there. A Nina Turner will be better to have. A Cori Bush will be better to have with in the legislature, in the federal legislature than not. Will a Stacey Abrams be better as governor of Georgia than the white boy that stole the election from her a couple of years ago? The answer should be yes. Reading an op-ed that she co-authored in the New York Times yesterday, she's talking about how to build coalition power in the South, sounded to me very much like what Julian Bond told, uh, told Kenneth Clark in 1967. However, she is not the savior. If you elect her the governor of Georgia, that day, that night you celebrate, it's great, sis, that morning. Hello, Madam Governor, what, what's up with that statewide health care? Well, I uh, no, we don't want to hear that. In other words, politicians, not your friends. But you're doing that and the federal and perhaps most importantly, the thing that Julian Bond said triggered this whole thing that made uh, ultimately them turn in a direction away was after they had Freedom Summer in 1964. And those young people and the other folks in Mississippi began to raise these fundamental questions because they had gained the trust of them by saying, look, we're here to help you. We're not here to tell you what to do. That momentum they carried into Atlantic City in 1964 when Fannie Lou Hamer stood there, sat there at the Rules Committee and said, is this America where I got to sleep with my phones off the telephone at night? She talked about getting beat at Parchment Prison. And she said, if this is America, I question America. If that is indeed uh, what happens when you engage people at the local level and have them begin to build leadership, build community? Julian Bond tells Kenneth Clark what the Democratic Party did to black people in 1964 by making them try to compromise with Ms. Hamer and them and the Mississippi Freedom Democrats. That is what then was the straw that broke the camel's back for the young people, my, my comrades who risked their whole lives in SNCC and that's when they went heavy into the black nationalism and pan-Africanism because they saw the limits of electoral politics and your failed system because you put your interests ahead of the interests of the people in this country. Now, why am I saying that? What does it have to do with today? The debates we're having now as to whether or not to vote, whether or not it's better to have black representatives, all those should be secondary to the grounding question of how do we free us? How do our people stay on this earth? And then you look at, at politicians as people you bang on to help you get resources that you've gone through your tax dollars, you've done because you're living in this place that should go then into local efforts that you never stop doing. Electoral politics doesn't replace organizing. In fact, it comes after organizing and it's just a tool. At the same time, you don't ever stop your coalition politics with the borders of your little town or your city or even your state. You look at the world solidarity movement. 
That is a lesson from the Black Panther. So it isn't about whether Lakeith Stanfield is a sympathetic figure, you know, whether uh, Daniel Kaluuya did a good job portraying uh, 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 Fred Hampton. These are the questions of children. In other words, these, these are people who have been so blinded by a cultural meaning making process that is invested in a movement and memory that is invested in a social structure that wants you never to turn away from the blinding light of founding fathers and democracy and all this old other stuff that people can't really explain if you press them too hard on it. And then they eventually drop all pretense and say, yeah, well, I just didn't think like that badge you talked about at the beginning. I just didn't think we could beat it. So I just repeat the same thing they said. No, 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 no. Once we're able to ask better questions, the solutions we find, some of those solutions are as local as everybody in this room right now saying, let me first invest for my child in some very basic information about who we are. Let me find the elders in our community and say, you never, I never thought it never occurred to me to ask grand, grandpa or pop pop or grandma or my auntie, what was she doing in 1968 and 69? And what can she tell me about what she think I should be doing right now? I'm going to tell you right now, those the solutions aren't going to be us. It's going to be those conversations and the answers to those conversations, because those solutions will be the broad concept fitted to the immediate needs. And then finally, the role of leadership seems to me because you got to have leadership. People talking about we don't need leaders. Yeah, no, nah, that's not true. That's not true. You need people who people can kind of feel like, OK, I trust you. I mean, like people trust you, Karen. Why? Because you've demonstrated you can be trusted. And then you got this in hell of work ethic and a mind that can bring us together on Saturday afternoon for a couple hours. You know what I'm saying? So, so yeah. Oh, now everybody can, I can't do what you do. So what leadership's role then is to help make those connections and advocate for people in places where they themselves cannot be present. In other words, literally, this is the literal meaning of the world. Not to present, but to represent, to represent, meaning mm-hmm. this is who we are to these forces that we've got to now move. I think that's 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 the, uh, the issue. Remember, remember, and represent. And represent. Oh, and as far I'm as listening, I'm, I'm gonna get this get this thing for these young people. I can hear you. I'm just gonna okay. get this. And and as as it relates to leadership, you know, when you say that, you're right. I'm trustworthy. I know I'm trustworthy. Uh, because I look at leadership not as a, a a singular thing. It's not charismatic. And I think that's been part of our problem too. We're looking for somebody to save us. I want you to talk about the Judas within, not just, uh, you know, the 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 obvious Judas, Judai, I don't yeah. know, <laughs> but, you know, the obvious Judas, Judases, uh, the folks that come in to infiltrate for their selfish uh, gains. But, you know, I think a lot of us carry Judas within us in our community. Mm-hmm. And, And, you know, these Saturday classes for me have been, you know, an awakening to be able to know everything has to be questioned. Yes. We got to check our facts on everything. And it is really taking me on a journey of like rediscovery of myself. Oh, no question. In the midst of this, we live. We we are here. Our DNA, our ancestors, they don't they are always with us. Always taking us on a journey. Even something like, you know, I was talking about Robert Church this week on the show. Yes, yes. You get a whole thing. Thank you for introducing me oh, to this is beautiful. Then I'm reading Black Fortunes and then I'm getting a, a bit. But I didn't realize that there was a an insurrection or an, an act of terror in Memphis. Don't get 
Irish white people, a mob of Irish white people came in. That's where Robert Church got shot. You talked about it on one of these episodes. But not in the kind. That's right. That's right. right. But then Church funds Black Wall Street, sends those folks out to Oklahoma after, after Ida B. Wells challenged him, both from Holly Springs, Mississippi, right? Yes. After she challenges him to, you know, what are you doing with this debauchery? Why aren't you putting your money into building up black people? He doesn't get in his feelings about it. No. Ego's not checked. You know, he's like, okay, I can do better. And he does better. And then the exact same thing happens in Tulsa, where a white mob comes in and we see 1919 Red Summer. We go down the list. So I'm asking a question, you know, about infiltration from this standpoint. At some point, as we build, because we are building, we are building here in this space. And I see communities changing and transforming, not just through Black Voters Matter and all of the work that's being done through Black Lives Matter, et cetera. But in these that's moments- right, told you too. Yeah, that was, oh, that was hot. That's right, that's right. She's amazing. Um, mm-hmm. Cliff, you know, but as I, as I see the folk who have come to this space, all leaders in and of, of themselves, because we, are, we have a responsibility, I, I appreciate it. We have a responsibility to be trustworthy, all of us, right? Yeah. As we build, we have to also protect because you, you mentioned from the beginning, the fear of the black Messiah My God. <laughs> is always going to be there, right? There is mm. right now, COINTELPRO did not go away. They're probably watching this video right now. Hi, yeah, sure hi, how are you? Hi, how are you? you can't stop all of us. Uh, no, nope. will not. That said, we have to build in, you know, first of all, the extrication of the Judases in ourselves and in our community, but also like how do we protect ourselves from white jealousy it's just in the white white fragility and white mediocrity and white uh um failure because really that's they always look over and like oh you're doing well when when those black folk in memphis when robert church was building up and they got mad and they came in and decimated the only thing that took them out was a yellow fever so they they had a pandemic that's <laughs> robert church was like okay i'm still here let me buy back all of this cheap property and do what i did before rebuild no question. But, you know, at some point there's fatigue. You know, we got, we got, we can't keep rebuilding. Right. We're remembering, we're representing. I'm tired of rebuilding. And when we build this thing again, we got to protect it. By, you well, know, yeah, that's, now that's true. And, and the demographics have changed and that can be a factor. De- demography isn't destiny. It doesn't mean it has to change. That's why I often say the United States is not going to be here much longer in terms of world history because it's unsustainable. It was always unsustainable, but now the numbers are shifting. And so we can't be scared of that. It would be like being afraid of the sun coming up tomorrow. It's going to happen. The question is, what are you going to do? And so as you were talking, Karen, laying it out and talking about Robert Church and talking about the reasons they went west and Ida B. Wells is going out there, it triggered a memory. And I'm going to fight the urge to go back in the other room. It's got more books than this one and get this biography of T.R.M. Howard. T.R.M. Howard was a surgeon, and in fact, that would then lead me to go looking for, and I'll never be able to find it now. There's a history called the the history of the knights and daughters of Tabor. I'm not going to take long on this, by way of answer, by the way, because the question is the question. Take your time, please. Take no, 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 because no. because I mean this again. This is another breadcrumb, right? Because the question you're asking, how as we're building it, do we protect it? One of the questions, you know, how as we remembering, how are, as we are representing, do we then defend our gains and consolidate and defend our gains? There are lessons too in the past as to you know how these things operate in, in, in various contexts. So, as I said, TRM Howard, who is a black surgeon, is the chief doctor at a black hospital 
that is started by the knights and daughters of Tabor in a black town called Mound Bayou, Mississippi, which we know, of course, if you know C.J. Walker and you know Mound Bayou, Mississippi. Where does Mound Bayou, Mississippi come from? Oh, and I'll come back to why I mentioned T.R.M. Howard first. Mound Bayou, Mississippi starts, the idea for it really starts, comes out of a betrayal. The betrayal that my friend Professor Catherine Frankie wrote about in her book, Repair, Redeeming the Promise of uh, Abolition. In fact, we just uh, covered this book last weekend in my class over at the law school. We, uh, I teach this book. We read this book. And so every time I reread it, I'm fascinated with it. She's got a chapter in here called Black Governance at Davis Bend, Chapter 2. Uh, Davis Bend was the home of a plantation owned by Jefferson Davis's older brother, Jefferson Davis, older brother, Joseph, Jefferson Davis and Joseph Davis. They had a plantation, Davis Bend. When the Civil War jumped off, of course, the younger brother, he was younger by 24 years, was the president of the damn Confederate States of America. The older brother had a trusted African who he basically let run much of the plantation. In fact, white overseers did not like to work at Davis Bend because Davis Bend, Joe Davis felt like, you know, the best way to have, and he was actually ironically listening to uh, the work of Robert Owen, who was often called the father of British socialism. Robert Owen used to say, you know, pe the less people are governed, the more submissive they will be to control. So what he had, well, he, these Africans are enslaved, but he basically let them have a lot of run of affairs. They even had a so-called slave court. Somebody called stealing or domestic violence or however you want to call it. They, they elected their own judges. The plantation overseers, the white boys, they did not like to work there because black people could even bring them up on charges. And they'd be in front of a black court of enslaved. So, but Davis was only doing this so he could make that money. When the war jumps off, Davis got to flee. Black people on the plantation is like, yeah, damn that. Bye-bye. Mm. They tear up the house, take all the stuff out, do what they want to do. But um, Benjamin Montgomery is the guy he trusted among the enslaved, Benjamin Montgomery actually contracts to run a little store on the plantation. He takes the proceeds from the store. He buys out from Davis the right for his wife not to have to be in the field. She ends up running this, and this kind of thing. And so long story short, they have a child, Benjamin Montgomery and his wife. They have a child, Isaiah. Isaiah becomes like a little uh, uh, apprentice kind of apprentice to uh to Ben Davis and when the war jumps off and the Union Army come down there granting these boys he becomes a kind of aide de camp to one of the commanders so Isaiah learns how to read he learns how to do all this stuff then the war is over the government here's the betrayal damn federal government when Julian Bond tells uh uh, uh Kenneth Clark we saw that betrayal in Atlantic City. The Democrats is like they picked themselves over us. And that's why the black people in SNCC was like, yeah, OK, <laughs> we see you. Hey, that's the betrayal that goes on every time. After the Civil War, the federal government under Andrew Johnson, and you can't put all this off on Andrew Johnson any more than you put it all off on Donald Trump. They give the land back to the plantation owners and sell the black people out in, 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 in the South, locking them into debt peonage, virtual wage slavery for another hundred years and beyond to this day, as Deontay Wilder might say. But as that happens, Isaiah Montgomery, father's dead now. Ben, uh, Joe Davis said, I'm never coming back. Why don't you buy this plantation from me? So Montgomery enters a $300,000 note and he's paying interest on the note to the old man. The old man dies, the family decides Damn that, y'all niggas. And in Mississippi, we passed the black codes anyway. You can't own property. 
kicked them out. The old man dies. One of the reasons why they might not have been able to uh, continue those payments anyway. There's a book by Kenneth Marvin Hamilton called Black Towns and Profit, Promotion and Development in the Trans-Appalachian West, 1877 to 1915. This is fascinating because like Tulsa, Black Wall Street, Nicodemus, Kansas, uh, the Oklahoma Black Towns, and there's a book on the all black towns of Oklahoma. I won't be able to find that, put my hands on it. But even Mount Bayou, you know Hamilton's argument? Hamilton's argument is that wasn't necessarily race pride. That with these people saying they're going to kill us in these other places and we will get the hell out of here and we'll do these all black towns. And some of them were led by black people who had already formed a small black elite and they was making a killing. So what ends up happening is the young Isaiah Montgomery, Isaiah Montgomery sees the betrayal. Part of the reason that they couldn't keep up the payments in the same way was the Montgomery family started buying horses and carriages and buggies. They tried to buy another plantation. They had black servants working. I mean, so there's this class thing working out. Isaiah Montgomery's like, damn that. We out. Found Mound Bayou. All black town. Booker T. Washington came and spoke. It's a great thing. He's got a problem, though, because some of them people you talking about, uh, Professor Hunter, have already left Mississippi have already left Tennessee. They going out with Pap Singleton and them boys out to, you know, exodusters. They going out there, Kansas, Oklahoma. They just going to get far. Montgomery, the young, the youth, uh, Isaiah, now a man, goes out there to try to recruit some of them to come back. Well, y'all can have the black thing here. They're like, nah, chief, I don't know about that. But when he finally puts together the parcels, which are near the railroad, being on railroad, with, not, not being on, but the railroad that start, that's why Mount Bayou can prosper. Some of them do come back. They do begin to go there. But it isn't because of rah-rah, race, pride, pan-Africanism. No, this is about creating a place where we can profit, we can build. One of the things they build, Knights and Daughters of Tabor, eventually, is that hospital. They recruit TRM Howard. He becomes the chief doctor at the hospital. He's one of the richest men in town, in the, in, in, in the state of Mississippi. And when young Emmett Till is killed, and they put those white boys on trial, and they let them go, Oh, by the way, you see, they let go of them white, them white police that, that beat up that old, uh, that old, that old white man in Buffalo. Same thing they did with Fred Hampton and them. They convened a grand jury and cleared the police immediately. Well, hell, that's what Buffalo, and that's what we know. In fact, that's why I don't trust that they gonna they gonna let Derek Chauvin go in Minnesota. Mark my words. But anyway, distractions do not get distracted because oh, we didn't get justice. No, justice would be bringing people back to life. And just like Bill Haas says, uh, when Mom and Jerry was like sitting in the uh, in, in, in the hospital saying they killed my, my husband and looked at him and said, what can you do? And he looked at her and said, I can't bring Fred back to life. See, he said, we won't be no justice. Anyway, when Emmett Till's mother came down there for the trial, every night when the trial was over, she was driven back to Mound Bayou to the home of TRM Howard, because them Negroes was strapped in an all-black town, and they were saying to the Klan, bruh, come on out, let's dance. So the question of how we defend what we have depends on who we are, where we are, what we have built, and what is the social structure that we're operating on. If you're in the state of Mississippi, if this is the mid-1950s, if you have an all-black town, if everybody in Mississippi got a gun, dogs, children, possum, trees, and if white people know, as my brother um, Akinyele Umoja writes in his book, We Will Shoot Back, 
or my friend and elder, the great Charlie Cobb, who was a member of SNCC rights. When they went, he said, when we got to Mississippi, y'all talking about nonviolent. Let me tell y'all something. All these Negroes got guns. And when this old man said to Dr. King, son, I agree. What you're saying is beautiful. Nonviolence is great. And uh, let me tell you one other thing. That nonviolence should have get you killed. Charlie made that the title of his book. That nonviolent, he said, stuff will get you killed. And he talks about all the people that were strapped in the civil rights movement. And in the paperback edition, he's got this old lady with a long rifle laying on her lap and her skirt on her porch, making the point that if you are in control of local politics, if you're in control like the people trying to do now in J Jackson Rising, right? There's my man, my, my elder, now an ancestor, the great Chokwe Lumumba. His son, uh, Chokwe Antar, is now the mayor of Jackson. If you can control local politics, you can begin to protect what you have built with not only city council, not only the mayor, not only whatever the form of government is, but with investment in your community, but you have to change your mindset. And part of the reason we study finally is so that when you look back, you say, I like the idea of Mount Bayou. It's very effective on this. But the animating concern that Isaiah uh, Dickerson had after seeing his father sold out by this guy who his father basically loved because he says, oh, if uh, if I had been around, I would have he nursed him back to health after this old man dies, whose brother was the damn president of the Confederacy. OK, we got to correct that. What we got to do is stop mistaking rich black people for black progress. So for every Robert Church, for every Isaiah Dickerson, for every black millionaire, for every fill in the blank person people worship now because they got a lot of money and think that's somehow a proxy for black advancement. Yeah, Jay-Z got a lot of money. Yeah, Jay-Z is at the table for the NFL, which means, yeah, Amanda Gorman read a poem. Guess what? Cap still ain't got a job. Y'all ain't got no black coaches. And when the last time you saw millions of dollars of investment in the NFL in your community? So just black people with a little money and high access does not translate. And we don't learn that from debating it now. We learned it from the last time we tried it, but we won't even know about the last time we tried it unless we read about it and study about it and discuss about it, which is why I got up to get this. All these young people, all y'all, all you got who young people who are going to watch Judas and the Black Messiah, get this book. Go to San Cope for somewhere. Get it. These are two brothers right here. David Walker, who wrote it. Marcus Anderson, who illustrated it. Graphic novel. The Black Panther Party. A graphic novel history. Go ahead. Support these black people. And and have your children have your look, have young people read this, and then let them watch Judas and the Black Messiah, and then ask them write a critique of the film. Oh my God! And then perhaps I don't know, Professor Hunter, maybe the nice maybe the maybe the best essays they could send it to send it through a mechanism or something. Maybe a couple of people can come in this space and maybe read it to us. Read one or two. I would love to hear somebody. I would love to hear a 13 year old or a 12 year old or a nine year old or a 17 year old do an analysis of Judas and the Black Messiah after reading this graphic novel. I know there's somebody listening right now that uh, can do that next, yeah. next week. You know, and the, the challenge again, uh, if you guys want to ask a question live, and I know a lot of folk are, are shy or. No, scared. come on. Yeah, it's just us, just us, you know, us. don't be scared. We are here. We no. love you. You know, there's no judgment. Ask your question. There's no stupid question. And I'm, I'm just like really impressed with, you know, the folk that have come in, you know. Um, no, no question. Today, uh, we have a shy person uh, waiting in the wings of somebody that's not quite ready. So, as I said, we're going to wrap up. Uh, if they're not ready by two, we're going to get out. And okay. Uh, next week, you hit me up on the DMs on Twitter at Karen Hunter. 
and we'll get you in. And next week, I think we're going to be ready to launch this new program, uh, this platform. Yes. Where, where, you know, we've been spending a shout out to the team, Kareem and Carl and Uraeus and yes. Monica and Jamel and all the folks that have been lending uh, their their energy, their their time. It's taken like six hours to do one of these videos to put. Oh, my goodness. You know, every reference, every song you mentioned, there's a there's going to be deep links to go and go down those rabbit holes. And we've done a bibliography. It's a lot because, you know, this this scholarship is not just about a conversation. It's about you picking up your baton, anyone that's watching and following. Like I wrote down TRM Howard. Yes. um, Look, you know what? While you waiting, go ahead. I'm going to go get it. It won't take a minute. Please go get go get it. And then tell us, you know, because this this is the 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 bringing together of the knowledge that's been stripped from us. You know, our our whole education has been. sanitized and erased on purpose because if we know then that they can't take this knowledge they could take a lot of things but this knowledge is these these gems that we do every week that's the building block for the future that we want to live in uh, and, and here you go all right, right. And, and repping the tennessee state which is uh yeah. your undergrad yep my undergrad these are those are the black people i tell people all the time i mean you know we make choices. You made a choice. Black media is a choice. You made a choice. Roland Martin made a choice. I mean, y'all, y'all make choices. And those of us who are teachers make choices. You know, if the gold standard isn't Howard, I'm sorry. Yeah, I want to speak on that a little, just a little bit. You know, uh, there's a lot of money coming in. There's a lot of money coming into a lot of places, a lot of, especially during Black History Month. Uh, a lot of people are, are checking their boxes, a lot of corporations. Yeah. Of, you know, I'm not racist. Here's some money. A lot of organizations. You work at one. A record number of donations. That's right. Um, but even those organizations must be held accountable. All of the NAACPs, the Urban oh, League, no getting tens of millions of dollars. The question we have to ask is if that where the money reside. If it's not showing up, if your organization is charged with, uh, you know, freeing black people. Yeah. Or you represent yourself as doing it. Yeah. Because people get a lot of credit for stuff and then. You know, we know different sometimes. Right. So I'm just saying we got to ask the question. I don't care how venerable the organization and how old and still, you know, stay. They, you know, we we need to ask the question. Just like, no question. Just like the politicians. No question. It's oh. right. No, no, no. You're right. And it's funny you say that because, like you say, I mean, those black folk who train, you know, our generation, many of them had a different perspective than even we do. I mean, they lived through the lost cause. The faculty that trained me at Tennessee State, man, those cats were, you know, they they knew that. And we've talked about that. If y'all go back and look at the uh, discussion we had around Wil- Wilmington, 1898, you know, now people are talking about Wilmington as a magnificent new documentary. There's a lot of work, scholarship. There's a book out. People, talk- Yeah, but H. Leon Prather was trapped by Jim Crow into the black colleges. You know, Helen Edmonds, you know, is there and they're writing and discussing and training. And more importantly, equally importantly, actually more importantly, they're training students. So when you see us, when we see each other, we're looking at those who brought us into it. And so people say, like I said, with the question to answer, or not, not even question to answer, with the discussion. When y'all coming in the conversation, please understand that no one is, no one, everybody's an expert on what they know. And it, it's only together we can do this. The idea of individuals, you know, no, nah, that's not impressive. 
That's not impressive. I mean, we all have different abilities, gifts, but collectively we have a collective resource. And so, yeah, let me just do this very quick. This is um, this is what I was talking about. TRM, look, there he is with Miss Till. I'll show you out a picture in a minute. TRM Howard, doctor, entrepreneur, civil rights pioneer, uh, David and Linda Royster Beto, four by Jerry Mitchell, with afterward by the authors, Independent Institute. There's the picture, right? Look, there goes Miss Till right there. You see? September 1955, witnesses and guests posed in the courtroom after the acquitted. But there's Dr. Howard right there. She's standing in my house. You see where his hand is? That's right. Let's be clear. See, Mamie Till, where's she going to stay if we don't control no institutions? Y'all know what? Mose Wright had to get the hell out of Mississippi after he pointed his finger at them white boys and uttered one of the two most powerful words put together, one of the most powerful phrases in American history in this social structure by an African. I always say there are five words that I always think about that are so powerful. Three by a woman, two by a man. Fannie Lou Hamer, I question America. And Mose Wright, when they asked, do you see the killers of your nephew in this courtroom? He pointed over and said, Darhi. <laughs> I said, let me tell you something. You say that, you better have some cat strap. Because <laughs> then white boys will put a target on your back. Nigga, you better not never testify. Please understand. That's why when I saw Philando Castillo's mother, mm. ooh, that was a moment of alchemy. I love that sister. I ain't never met her. Rolling had her on the show and I was able to tell her Valerie Castillo. She was sitting in her car. She did that Facebook Live. Y'all ain't never seen it. Because, you know, she's, she's, she's in Minnesota, but it's that Southern twang. You know, them Mississippi Negroes and Texas Negroes, all them, that's all up in Minnesota. That's that George Floyd and them in up there. The, old, the police killed my son. And I'm going to tell y'all right now. No, it ain't no justice. And no, I ain't going to be quiet. No, I ain't talking about. And she just, I mean, it was so beautiful. I don't use the word eloquent because eloquence is a form, is a word that really describes the type of speech that sounds good. What it really was, was what the ancient Egyptians call it, medu nature, which means good speech. It was good speech. And I'm saying, if you're gonna talk like that, you have to have institutions. You have to have institutions. And you have to always finally to the Judas within that you were talking about, Karen. The Judas isn't always without, as we know. As Malcolm asked in a, in a, in a talk he gave out in LA in the early sixties, he was like, you know, who taught you to hate yourself? A great deal of this has to do with the desire. Roland always talks about this of white approval. And by white approval, I mean, you know, this is not to take away from anyone who is right now uh, white famous, as you know, Mike Harrod and so many others have written about being white famous. You know, if that's your aspiration, ask yourself why. And ask yourself what part of yourself have you carved into a smaller version of yourself to try to attract the attention of someone to be white famous? And don't assume that because you've done that, that you can't restore yourself to your full humanity, but it may cost you this. It may cost you the thing that you thought you wanted. Because what I found over and over again is the people who want that, who want that recognition, when they get it and they eventually get sold out, or they been, then they black as hell. <laughs> you know, and when they get black as hell, we have to be able to say, come on back. But come on back. But come, what you won't do, you're not coming back as the leader of this. No, you come on back in the room, but what you're not going to do is come run that same game you was running last week till they pulled that crossover on you here and expect us to come with you. We tried to tell you before you left. I love it. I love it. Uh, okay, let's bring in Jacqueline. Ah. 
Jacqueline is here from the DMV area. Uh, military person has hey, been. Uh, oh, welcome. That's my sister, Jacqueline. All right, Jackie Cole. Can you hear? Yes. Can you hear? All right, hear me? Yes. That's yeah. just that's a whole piece. I'm so glad to see. Wait a minute. You in the DMV, Jack? Yeah, I'm here on my way to South Africa. I'm going to South Africa in like three days. When you're leaving in a, in, in, in a few days? Yeah, to go to South oh. Africa. I'm headed to Durban. Okay, for y'all who don't know, and I ain't gonna say too much, but I want her to talk about herself. That way y'all know what I can and can't say. Just know that this sister right here is one of the baddest sisters in terms of thinking about our people internationally. And she isn't just thinking about it. She's been doing it for quite a while now. I know she looked like a kid, but uh, don't let that fool you. So anyway, let me get let me get out of your way. Jay, I'm so glad to see you. What's going on, sis? Who don't yeah. you know? So that's sort of the questions I wanted to ask. So I had three, <laughs> three questions. Or, or so maybe comments now. Mind. I think it was, yeah, no, they're questions because this is my point as a moderator just for folks is I feel like you should always ask your questions up, up front and then explain why you're asking the question. Okay. That way the person who's answering it has time to think about what you had to say and then can respond. So teach. I have two that I can remember. I'll see if I can come back to the third. But the first was about um, this thing about institutions that you've been speaking about. And specifically, how do we maximize what we can do with those who are in um let's say white facing institutions but also in our own institutions and second part of that is how do we um avoid the infiltration of some of the ne negative aspects of the larger culture global culture white facing culture um when we build our institutions because you talk a lot about having our own but even in our own institutions as you and i know uh, being historical black college spaces um, that that happened. Um, the second I had was about economics. Um, and it was, you know, how do we use an Africana lens to look at um, economics beyond like collective economics? Because people talk about that a lot, but we kind of get stuck in the dichotomy of either Marxism or like hypercapitalism for Black people. And I think there has to be some other perspective that we can use not only as a critique, but also um, as a way to move forward. Because there's, we talked a lot about African spirituality on the show, but I think economics is a part of that as well. So we need, and, and elect, you know, politics. But I think economics is a key component that we need to understand from an Africana perspective. Oh, I think the third one was just, yeah, how as a community do we define ourselves both like, uh, what, how do we define foreign? And then how do we define what is global or international? And I'm, that's kind of broad, but she, as you said, from what I work in, I've been thinking about Ralph Bunch a lot. I've been thinking about um, Ambassador Edward Perkins, who was the first South uh, Black ambassador to South Africa during yes. apartheid, and he was the ambassador to the UN, which leads us to Linda Thomas-Greenfield, whose nomination was halted by uh, Cruz yep. in the committee. So now, because we're having this, uh, impeachment trial, she can't be moved forward um, right. as nominee as of yet. So we see those politics playing out. Those are some of the things. This is a framework I've been thinking about. So yeah, because then and then he, he caused the tech on the Confucius Confucian Institutes, which was problematic. Well that's a <laughs> go ahead. I'm sorry now. No, I just want brilliant questions. People are asking about this artwork behind you, Miss Jacqueline, Professor Jacqueline. Yes. Yes. 
What what is this artwork? It's beautiful. I have no idea. So I'm <laughs> just real talk because we're black. I'm getting my hair done before I go to South Africa because there's only so many people I would do my hair. So when you were asking where I was, I was oh, like, right. this spot. So I'm literally in my hairdresser's bathroom. Um, uh, it looks like basketball. Did it? the art? It looks, yeah, like, it, it looks a little like basketball. Or maybe. Anybody who's in DC, Kenny Keller, she's on U Street. Um, but yeah, she has a lot of great black art. Um, wow. Traveling to South Africa during a pandemic. Uh, is this work? Yeah. What, what's work what? related? Yeah, yeah. It's work related. I work in foreign affairs um, in uh, public outreach and engagement. And so apparently I'm critical and I'm headed to South Africa. I'm trying to be as safe as I can for those who are concerned. So wait, yeah, including me. Are you serious? And I should get the answer back in a few Jack. Yeah. They got you on the critical list. Yeah. Okay. Well, listen, because I mean, I don't know how much or how little you want to say, maybe by way of me asking you before we start having some conversation about these three kind of buckets and large areas you raised. What, and if, if, for those listening, should give you a little bit of a clue when she started talking about Ed Perkins and Linda Thompson Greenfield and before that, Ralph Bunch. How, you know, what, what start, what really um, started you the thinking about these three, particularly this question of the question of community, foreign, global interests, this kind of thing. I mean, you know, uh, you have a lot of experience. You know, you, you've seen yeah. things up close that people theorize, but maybe never saw from the way that you see it. So you have that thinking, but you also right. have the, the lived experience. How, how, what made you a... So the foreign um, and global has always been um, interesting to me. I grew up in a household. My dad is what you'd be like. U.S. African-American, U.S. Negro is probably the best term. <laughs> African-American is pretty useless. But, um, and my mom is from Jamaica. So I grew up in a global perspective. And then I grew up in the military. Like from both my parents were in the military. So I grew up in a global sense and a global community. So when Professor Hunter asked where I was from, I was like, hmm, that's hard to say. I'm from everywhere. Anywhere black people are, I've been there and I'm from there. So... Um, but those people in particular, it's because of what was going on publicly. What's funny is last week when I had asked to be on the show, I was at a place called Bunch Beach by accident. I happened, my mom lives in Southwest Florida and I like to go out to the water and I was listening to the show, listening to you and Professor Hunter and searching from somewhere on Google and no lie, the first thing that popped up was Bunch Beach. And I was like, where, how does this work? I was like, it can't, can't be named after anyone else showed up, looked at the plaque. In 1949, this community of Black people who didn't have a place to swim, like, petitioned to have a location, and they named it after Ralph Bunch. You've got to be kidding me. There's a book called Free the Beaches that talks about what? these Black beaches. I got to go now. Look, they named it for... <laughs> but yeah, Bunch is yeah, and a they had 5,000 people here. there on the first, on the day that they dedicated Black people, you know how we do, we had a barbecue. No question. And they dedicated this beach. So, yeah, which was crazy because when I was there, I was the only Black person on that beach and probably the only one who knew who Ralph Bunch was, but. Well, yeah, I mean, in addition to, you know, obviously being a graduate of Howard, you know, your career, I think, in many ways, you know, you really have insight in terms of 
not only what Bunch may have set out to do, what he then, how he then maybe either course corrected or was forced out of that and found himself being used, as you know better than I do, in the Congo, you know, Palestine, you know, but for your generation, I guess, what would you put yourself in terms of, of international affairs and state? Maybe third, fourth generation, maybe now, if Bunch is the first generation, mm -hmm. then the second generation. Yeah, well, no, no, no. Perkins may be second generation or third. Because after Bunch, who really um, emerges? Well, you could say first generation and you could go back to Frederick Douglass. And when, That's when, true. Uh, With Hayden. Johnson, who was yeah. representative. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Um, that's very true. But people don't know that. Mm -hmm. So teach, that's how it's first generation. Teach. That's very important. That's right. Bunch becomes then second if we're looking at That's right. Oh, my goodness. I forgot about that. And of course, mm -hmm. you know, like Bunch, we know Douglas gets sold out a little bit down there in Haiti when they basically make the Haitian government uh, mm -hmm. negotiate with the military. It was like a naval guy or something. They say, yeah, don't even the Negro just go to. So I think part of even this conversation we're having, I'm thinking about this the is a really good website. I think it's blackpast.org. Blackpast.org has the list of all the black diplomats and representatives um, that would, have would served. You so as a diplomat? You're in the diplomatic corps. I, yes, yeah. I am. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're in the diplomatic corps, right? So, I mean, just, just, you know, just so people understand, a lot of the insight that you have in terms of what you're raising now is coming from seeing people around the African continent and the Caribbean, seeing people here in the U.S., and not seeing people from the periphery of the conversation. I mean, you're, for lack of a better way of phrasing it, many times you're in the room. So, and I'm sure there are things you can say, things you can't say, but I think that's part of the thing in terms of, um, well, the first question you raised, how do we avoid the negative aspects? I think part of it is we establish places like this that are our self-determining spaces so that folks who, uh, who choose, because we don't send anybody anywhere, folks who choose to send themselves to represent us, in other words, who go into space and saying, I am representing not just my individual interests, but I'm thinking about the collective interests of my communities and my people. So the people who do that in these very difficult places, whether it be the, the, the heights of Fortune 500 uh, corporations or the heights of a place like the Department of State or for that matter, state, local, federal government, so that people who are there can always have a place to return to or stay connected with. Rather, I hate that whole notion of going and returning to, but stay connected and be fed with the community sensibility, the conversations we're having so that the they, they are never untethered. It seems to me that the folks who are more likely to turn into I don't say pawns, but who turn be turned against the collective interest of our communities are people who end up being cut off. Like they go so far out that they just don't and they don't. There's no way to sustain them. That's very important. And, you know, well, anyway, well, I'll come back to that and say, but the second one in terms of economics, how do we how do we do that? And again, everybody listening to the conversation uh, that Jackie and I are having um, and Jackie and, and, and Professor Hunter and myself are having um, this question of collective resource procurement, securing, defense, expansion, it looks very different for someone like Jackie who has seen, Jackie Cole, who has seen what black controlled governments 
places like, you know, in Africa, Central Africa, Southern Africa in particular, West Africa have attempted to do because we know that race is not enough. See, she understands that better than probably all of us. Being black is not enough. What is your commitment to the well-being of everyone in that society? And it's a difficult conversation because the farther you get away from black controlled countries, the better the concept of black controlled countries gets without a critical eye. Unless we're doing that, that third thing, which is sustaining our communities internationally, which means global solidarity, which means they haven't forgotten the economic piece. I'm coming back to that. But I want to connect it to the third one you raised, because uh, when we look, for example, at Haiti, what's, Haiti right now is under a very deep structural crisis. Another one because of the leadership or lack thereof. And that leadership is being enabled by, among other things, the government of the United States, the federal government, Venezuela. The same way, look at my, my, our colleagues in Black Alliance for Peace will tell you that. So that part of our international solidarity movements are should be aimed at everyone, who, wherever you're living, you play your part in our global organizing struggle, our global liberation struggle, which means our role in the United States is to ask the Biden-Herod administration, why are you coming out in support of a coup in, in Venezuela, an attempted coup with this fool Juan Guaido, what's your position on Haiti? And as far as uh, Africa is concerned, we know where you're headed, Jack, that uh, they just announced a couple of days ago, you know this better now. Do you? Hell, you probably got the memo before all of us, of course, that the South African government is pulling back on the AstraZeneca vaccine because it is proving increasingly ineffective against the SARS, uh, the COVID-19 uh, too. And, and and that at the same time, the head of the World Bank, uh, the World Bank, the head of the World Health Organization, Dr. Chedros, and this and the Africans as well are saying, look, we were good enough for you to come here with this damn experimental vaccine and test on us. Where are the doses? Because until everybody reaches a level of herd immunity in the world, none of us are safe. So with that having in mind, there are no domestic conversations that are not international. Our gap is understanding how the international affects the local. Now, finally, in terms of economics, I want to hear you, Jack. We want to have a little bit of conversation about this because I mean, you you have you have a wealth of experience and knowledge, and I hope you're still doing your work where you're helping teach and connect young people. I hope you say a little bit more about that. But um, the economic piece, I think, really comes down to being able to control what we can control, and then seeing how we can connect that to other things we can control. You sitting in a black-owned salon, you know, the question becomes not only how do we support that sister, but then how does supporting that sister then translate into everything from supply chain, you know, where, where, are, the, where, where, where are the products she's using being sourced? How does that connect? And how does all of that connect to controlling everything from who's on the D.C. City Council to enable the type of legislation that won't prevent uh, her from being able to maximize those profits to who is other places outside the uh, United States, like England, for example, they're going through hell with Brexit right now. That's going to be death on those black business owners who can't now ship stuff to France, who can't send stuff to the Netherlands. They've been saying, how do we work together so that we can empower ourselves economically at the very smallest level and at the same time use that to build momentum so that when we do find a place in the world, whether it be Jackson, Mississippi, Kingston, Jamaica, whether it be Ghana or the Gambia, where increasingly more black folk who are in the diaspora are moving back to Africa, we can then begin to say that's the breakout spot. Now, channels resources there, but it begins, I think, with conversations like this. I know it's kind of broad, vague. Go ahead, jump in though, Jack, please. No, but that's perfect. That's perfect. And it's so funny because I think we had a guy, Roger, who's on a few weeks ago, talking about um, an act he wanted to do. And I remember thinking, I was like, 
this is why we need to have these conversations because I was like, I'm someone like me would know, okay, there's some policy questions you need to get into because there's labor laws in each one of those countries that you wanna, yes. and you gotta know the right people and sort of those, those, those questions. Um, so we all become important regardless of where we are in the structure. Um, and it's interesting that you bring up, you know, funnel resources to different areas because yeah, my PSA to anyone, because there's not a lot to say in my public capacity. Sure. But it's like, get your passport. Please Come on, passport. Even Tell if you're like, now. traveling now. Yo, you got some extra stimulus money, some something tax money coming in, get your passport. And um, personal side, this is my personal opinion, and, and what I'll tell you what I'm doing. I'm working and I had to really work on my mother to get the documents I needed to get dual citizenship. Because I was like, why not? <laughs> why not have a passport from Jamaica? And why not? Yeah. To be able. Why not? Yeah. Wait a minute, I don't want to interrupt you. I want you to keep going. But I, before before you continue, particularly you young people listening, would you please, would you please, please again, Jack and Cole, tell them again about the passport and the dual citizenship if you can get it. I suspect there's more than one person listening who could do that. Could you just reiterate that before you continue? Get your passport because you never know when you will need to travel um, and you do not want to be waiting to be able to do that. Um, and you need it to get into Mexico and Canada. So, um, <laughs> right. Do that um, at the very least. But, you know, uh, there are a lot of benefits to those citizenship and there's some concerns that people have. I think most of those concerns people I know who are dual citizens can be mitigated. Um, I will What's tell the you the State yeah. Department says, I, what I'll tell you is what I know is that the State Department, if you went on its website, would say there are issues with dual citizenship in terms of what level of assistance you can get. I can say I've never seen that happen in practice. Okay, so that's important. why someone would argue that is a question of you know the governance structure versus the how about that? Right? But how about that? from and my perspective, um, the conversations I have with my family is like I want as many options as possible. That's what rich white people are doing every day. Versus Marxism. I started listening to a lot of people in the last, you know, election cycle, or whatever, talk about socialism, Marxism. Even and even in this space, we talked about um, Paul Robeson, and I'm like, well, we need some context beyond Marxism to understand those things. That's right. Um, yeah, and I'm just really concerned about black people describing themselves as brands. That too, like as people who who people have literally been branded, we're literally commodities, commodifying yourself. Is, is an interesting place to be in 2021. You know, I'm glad you raised that too, Jack, because I know you've seen this up close too. Um, Charlie Cobb, of course, we're we'll talking about from SNCC. When SNCC made that move, some of them, and traveled abroad and spent a lot of time in Africa, one of the places they landed for a long time was Tanzania. And, and, and Charlie Cobb wrote an essay in Black World Magazine. It was 1967. It's called Notes on Returning Home. And what he said was, what he saw was that there are black folk all over the world who, first of all, he said, there's a black elite 
kind of petty bourgeois, bourgeois class everywhere you go. Don't assume that that means that they are Pan-Africanists. He said, however, what I'm noticing as well is that some of these black people know each other, meaning that while we're talking about Pan-Africanism, there are people who are black who look like us who are talking about it too, but they're talking about it from let us profit together and maintain our status. And I know every time I go into to the continent, yeah. it's fascinating to watch how class still operates. And that's not what you're talking about, is it? I mean, just this collective advance of this handful of yeah. black people who know each other. H how do we get out of that so that people who, most of our people never travel, which is why I wanted particularly those young people to hear. Uh, and plus, and when, when you, when you, when you uh, respond in a second, I also want you, if you have it on top of your head, how much generally you're talking about to get a passport. And I'm thinking, most people, until my mother, till we went to Egypt uh, about 10 years ago, my mother hadn't been to Africa. I mean, and and, and she's the, the vast majority of our people had the people who travel usually think that they need a certain amount of means and things like that. But how do we get out of that notion that just that small group of black people, like the ones who gathered in Ghana during the year of return, the partying on the beaches and stuff. That's not what we talking about. I don't know. It's not instant. It's not Instagram travel photos. Not that there's anything wrong with that. You know, it inspires people, right? But sure. but like, what are you doing in those spaces when you show up there? And right. where's your money going, right? Are you going to black-owned institutions in those spaces, which are few and far, far between, but are that are available? That is a great question. I mean, I literally had that conversation in multiple continents with people. Who the irony is? Irony is there are people that know each other across those spaces, but will still say that their economic or political structures are localized to the country they're from. And I'm, and my argument is always like I've had this conversation in Cabo Verde, I've had this conversation in Lisbon, I've had this conversation in Washington, I've had this conversation in Miami, I had this conversation in Kingston, the exact same conversation. So y'all can't be like just these little places, y'all all are connected. And six degrees of separation, I could probably connect you to each other, which we could also do historically, right? One of the other things that um, just as quick aside that you asked me what brings this up in me, I had to get out of clubhouse because I was having arguments with people who were ADOS. I was just like, I don't understand. Does not make, understand, under, make any sense. You can't quote my Malcolm X to me you can't talk about how important Cicely Tyson is, and they're both Caribbean descent. Right. Like we never stopped moving. We've never stopped moving. Ooh, so that should be on a T-shirt. boxes. We never stop moving. That's right. You, yeah, you holding us in. Like we are, we are a living movement. We are a living movement. So you holding us in these boxes is just decreasing the creativity that you can have about looking at who has the human resources, who has the you know, physical resources, who has the infrastructure we need so that you can think about these things long term. And it's not just how do I make a couple of dollars here? How do I make a couple of dollars there? It's like you're saying, we got to think about institution building. And that is, you know, whether, you know, we have a long history in the academic space, but we need to start building those in economic spaces too. And as you said, the supply chain, the, yeah, because we're getting in, in situations where the, I uh, and I saw this in Howard. It always used to frustrate me that we're always comparing ourselves to a white standard, right? 
Yes. So we're concerned, comparing ourselves to the Harvards or whatever. And we're, and and then against other HBCUs. And as long as we're better than that, we're doing well, right? Not, I, I love Howard to my heart. If somebody oh, yeah. asked me where I was from, I would probably say Howard before anything else, right? <laughs> I am from the Mecca. So it's yeah. not a it's not a, a it's just a reality about how we look at institutions. And I think we have to stop looking at the white standard because there are real problems in our in our economic system and our supply chain about how we do we see that in the pandemic. We couldn't get PPE because it was all coming from China. So if you're setting up a business as a black person and you're like, you're gonna go down that same road, like use the use the Africana lens to say, how can I look at this differently? How can I right. come up with a different option? That's right. That and gets we can't, us more free, gets me personally more free, but gets other people more free. That's right. You and, know what? And buttresses me against all the other issues that I see are problematic in what's around me. Aha. Uh-huh. That's why I was going I was going to ask you in terms of leadership. And then again, for folks who are, are watching our conversation and thinking, particularly young people who are looking at you and saying, I don't get everything she says, but I get enough of it to want to know more about what are you doing? Is is this what leadership looks like for those of us who choose to represent, as we say, the rest of us in this space. Oh, it's almost time, huh? You <laughs> oh, she gotta go. So, yeah, she's making sure she's telling them she gotta get her here. Listen, while she's listening, Jackie Cole is one of the most talented young people we have. I'm sending y'all know. Oh, she can hear. I forgot. Damn, she put on mute so you can hear. Anyway, all right, that way. <laughs> but is are you what are you an example of what this looks like when you find yourself in places where the rest of us aren't, but you got a commitment. To either bringing the rest of us in the space or learning what's in that space to help the rest of us connect. Is this what it looks like for young people who are looking at you saying, okay, so how do I do what she does and what should I do once I get there? Mm, that's a good question for me, uh, because I know I'm not always going to be in this space, uh, which is a conversation we need to have because I, yes, I'm trying to figure out PhD options in South Africa and some other things. But, uh, um, I'm all, I'm like Issa Rae, I'm rooting for everybody black. And so in my institution, um, I've learned over the years about navigating in the spaces that um, are white facing. So diversity and inclusion is a big thing right now. And yes. I've been in those spaces in those conversations. Wow. And I've also made decisions about how I'm not gonna be in those spaces and conversations anymore, right? Or if I do that, I'm going to run that conversation and there's certain things we're gonna talk about. We're gonna talk about equity, we're gonna talk about access, we're gonna talk about justice. That's the minimum, <laughs> at the minimum. And so in the places where you can control the conversation, you've been there long enough to, to, to make leadership decisions, you, you give people space, you give younger people, people that come behind you, even your peers, yes. space to be able to show what they can do. Um, you make safe spaces. So I have the space, safe spaces that I've created for other people of color. Specifically, I'm interested in black women who work in the specialization that I do um, so that they can have open conversations because you can't do that everywhere in your institutions. Um, and most people have gone to a PWI know that, right? I don't even like using safe space. I like using free space. So free space no is minimum, right that's right that's <laughs> right. right like safety should be the minimum for black people for everything we like you said we live in a field of violence so mm. how do we mm. get free spaces mm. Um, mm. and yeah those are the main and then just promoting people when i can like when i see something that i know somebody 
who's qualified and looks like me can do or just has a, a similar sensibility is better, right? Because blackness yeah. is a lot of things. It's not just it's not just casting. That's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, That's right. That's right. Um, it's a political and uh, ideology uh, as well. So when people are this similar mind, you put them in that space to do what they can do. And, mm, and, similar mind. That's, that's important. So, similar mind. Yeah. I have a whole group of HBCU people in my field who we support each other every day. Literally every day. Like through the difficult things and the great things that we're doing. And yes. now we're seeing after a couple of years and changes in administration that we have weathered like what, what the spaces they're getting into and the conversations that they are directly impacting. Like there are things yeah. that are directly happening in the news that I'd be like, I know who helped make sure that happened. And helped, like you said, held somebody's foot to the fire in a different way because they're on the inside. They're not talking to an elected official the same way. So yes. that, that part is is interesting to see. Uh. I appreciate you for that and answer, Professor. Questions, oh, might be able to put it in the chat, but I think a passport is around two hundred dollars. I think it's like yeah, it I was thinking too up or down, but it's something in that range. It depends on the, the state that you're in. Oh, is oh, two seventy. Yeah, it did, it did go up. Yeah, it might have gone up. It's gone up. Yeah, but still, that's still but cheaper I'm than you in, in terms of an investment. <laughs> you need it. And, and, for, and for those of you who are who are second generation Jamaican, Trini, Nigerian, get those explore. Do I saw, look, Jack? That's right, look, Jack. The first time we uh, uh I remember Chigozi A and M when we were in South Africa. I've been carrying my back my passport back in my in my back pocket, so it got raggedy. We come to customs. The cats at the uh, at, at 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 the airport were like, "We can't let you in because your passport." Is frayed at the end. I'm like, damn. So they said, well, we'll send somebody to the State Department. So you know that probably would have been you if you've been there at the time. So, but you know, Chigozier says, I'll go on the other side, get our luggage and secure it to y'all till they call state. How's he able to do that? He goes in his back pocket and pulls out his Nigerian passport. Now he's from Jersey, but his dad is from, from Nigeria. So he's able to go through and get all our luggage and wait for us. And at that moment, it just hit. That was what? Maybe what? 2000, maybe. I don't, I don't even remember now. That was like 2009, eight. Maybe it was the second time we went. My point is that you never know just how Amer people say, what does it mean to be an American? It means you're limited by your passport <laughs> unless you think differently. So I don't even know, Jack. I remember, I remember when Leon Sullivan made transition, he had at least seven passports from West Virginia, was in, you know, he, he's one who they credit with the so-called Sullivan principles in South Africa. There are ways for those of us who have both sides came out of enslavement in the U.S., as distinct from you who has one side came out of enslavement in the Caribbean and the other side came out of enslavement. There, there's ways for us to get, I know people, I heard Ghana was working on perhaps dual citizenship for African-Americans. Have you heard that? They are. I think, I think Ghana, I think Ghana does have it. I think people can check. They do. There's also been conversation that the AU is going to create a passport that will let you sort of like the EU passport move through throughout all the countries. And for I read that. that. I heard, I heard the diplomats already diaspora. have Yeah. I heard their diplomats yeah, already. Yeah, I think that's in the process. Yeah, and then for folks that don't know, the AU recognizes the diaspora as another portion of the AU. So one of the questions that's on the table is that will that be available to the diaspora as well? 
Can you but imagine you do a little that? bit of research online to figure out which countries you can get past a dual citizenship to. Um, yes. Usually it requires, it might require some type of residency, um, but you can get yes. close with that. And why not? In this time where people are working remotely anyway. Right. Ooh, that's good. Right. Bar oh, anyway. <laughs> I think Barbados also is opening yeah. things up in Rwanda. So there's a lot of options. Jackie, you came in bringing fire. I never know who's coming in. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, I, I put out a question, DM me, and I don't know who's going to show up. And then, then there's somebody that car knows. So. Professor Hunter, we had to be clear. That one right there, you got to have her on your 18. Oh. They took care of me when I first came out. I'm just telling you. So, yeah, that one there, you got to get her in. The, right. That's a heavyweight. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm down. I'm down to, to help with anything. I'm all for institutions. I'm going to hit you in the DM that you sent to me um, and safe travel in South yeah. Safe travel. And I know you got to go get your hair done. All right. <laughs> That's right. Okay, Jack. Good to see you, sir. <laughs> wow. All right. This is weird. Uh, not even. I don't know why I'm a surprise. Everyone's no. like, you made the space and people are coming. Are these people? And everyone's like, I don't have a Twitter account. Get a Twitter account. It doesn't cost easy. anything. No. If Twitter's toxic for you, don't be toxic on Twitter. It's so easy to not be toxic on Twitter. It's Just so easy. Follow Carr at Africana Carr. Follow me at Karen Hunter. Let that's me know if you want to ask a question. And it's, it's just that easy. So um, I just want to say that. And I'm glad she brought that economic thing because as I'm looking at this, this is not, while we don't plan this, I have a vision for where I want us to go. And no so question. the beginning was like, let's get the soil right. You know, let's let's start making sure that we can plant good seed and, and actually produce a crop. Yes, I think we're there, but uh, economics is on the table. You know, as people, are, you know, literally uh, traded as as a commodity. And we've talked about the cowrie shells before. Yes. I would love for us eventually to have these conversations about the history of money, the Mansa Musas, the the folk. You know, like we need to. What? How did Africans trade? You know, we talk about Swahili being a trade language. What was the the value uh, uh, in Africa and in the different countries? Uh, and before they were countries, you know, the different peoples, how how did they, you know, go back and forth with money? Because how we used to do it is how we can all, you know, it's like, like you said, we have to remember how do we do this in the past? And, and as we move forward, you know, I just had a conversation with Sinclair Skinner, another Howard uh, alum, oh, yeah. uh, your brother, yes, Mari, for this uh, space that we've created called Narrative mm, that we'll talk about next week. Yes. We did a session on cryptocurrency 101. Um, Terry Egioma 101, how to trade a stock. Yes. Maybe Johnson 101. Here's why you need patents and intellectual property. She's a patents uh, intellectual properties attorney. Oh, yes. Yes. I have a lot of money people coming to give foundation so that we, uh, because I, I do, I agree with, with Sister Jackie. We need to get this economic power together and figure out how to both boycott, meaning spend our money with people who are rocking with us. I'm looking at AT&T. AT&T is putting billions of dollars in black pockets. And I'm like, OK, is this a good company for, you know, it doesn't have to be all black. It just has to be people who are aligned. Right. The freedom of black people. Right. So, uh, let's let's be smart. Let's be uh, uh, strategic. Yes. Yes. OK, I got I got my notes on this, too, because we got to. Okay, yeah, there's a couple of good books, and there's one called Blood and Money, and there's another one called Fistful of Shells. I mean, it's the, the 
well, anyway, we that's a whole lot. It's a lot. The, the short of it is that you know the, the the quick and dirty is that when we entered this field of violence, this capitalist field of violence over the last five hundred years as property, the thing that was being extracted out of Africa was human capital first. At the same time, it displaced the means of transactions continent wide. There was no global. I mean, there's no continent system. But as and taking us out. What was returned was not the proxy for human value. So silver out of Mexico, gold out of wherever, including Africa, those commodities were then used to build the international capitalist system and exclude Africa at the same time. So the idea that Africa could somehow catch up when literally you and I are the products of those who were traded for the gold, traded for this, and then they brought back what they bring back to Africa, guns, rum, glass, beat. no way, we're not going to include you in the international system of finance. Now, later on, we will then come back to extract material resources for you. That's the direct colonialism. And we will give ourselves the licenses to do it because we came in with guns and it wasn't private companies our time. It was the States, England, France. Uh, so you see- Belgium, you talk about lumber, uh, you rubber, rubber in the Congo. Yeah, I mean, th these conversations have to be had because we have to remember, we have to remember not only were our bodies, our black bodies, bought and sold not only were we branded and when she said that we want to be brands right you know, come on like Ooh. let's let's remember that too yes but but now as we move forward the power in how we commodify the movement you know you talked about the money drying up that should never happen we no. sit here every saturday and i appreciate all the folk that donate you don't want you to take this and you want cash app or whatever when we when we launch this next thing you know you must bring five more people in, you know, so that we can yeah. build the think tanks that we need. We can build the, the the infrastructures for publishing houses and 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 support the folk that are out there. Everything doing the documentaries, the next Eye on the Prize series, the next yeah. the next graphic novel. We have to be our own, like you. You were talking about um, Carter G. Woodson and those young people putting five on it. Those children putting no five question. On. This has to be the That's way how you built it to freedom. That's so, right. So I'm grateful. Thank you. Without you, Me too. we couldn't be here. No, 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 no. You created this space. I'd be talking to myself for them same 150 kids, which is great. But uh, let's be clear. The, the, we didn't jailbroke it now. People want to know what it looked like. It's starting to look like this. And it looks like everybody from all over the world, you know, yes. who's in here every week. Um, yes. And yes. it ends up being about 50,000 people every week who come into this space. And I'm, wow. I'm just humbled and grateful. But this is just the beginning. So the beginning. I'm ready. Who's a rolled up, Dr. Carr? Let's get it. Yeah, We're going to get it. Love you. <laughs>